that's only after one cup of coffee. I get one here. Oh, thank you, thank you. Well, we certainly want to thank all of you for joining us this morning. Um, apparently, uh, you're as interested in the subject of uh, reactionary biodefense as we are. And we've got a uh, quite a few panelists today that uh, can help us sort our way through this. And so we're grateful to have your presence here. You know, I think one of the things that we've understand unfortunately, particularly in a democracy, is uh, we have a tendency in this country to react to things after they occur. I can say I'm someone who spent a time most of my life in public service. You don't get too much. Public servants are not lauded or applauded by standing up saying, we anticipated this problem 10 years or 15 years hence. We're going to act today to avoid the crisis tomorrow. It just doesn't happen. We wish it would, and maybe one of these days will change, but it doesn't happen. And some form of these issues turn into crises, and I think Americans sometimes have fooled themselves into thinking, well, we're pretty good, so if it happens, we'll be able to respond quickly and effectively to it. And oftentimes, we learn after the event occurs, we weren't as prepared as we could have been. It's like that, I forget what that commercial was, pay me now, pay me later. Uh, we need to be a lot more preemptive rather than reactive, um, but we're not there yet. And I'd also like to think, as I speak for my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, it's not necessarily good governance to wait until a crisis occurs, although, unfortunately, that seems to be the norm. The panel is pleased to see, you know, we've been at this for three years. We're very grateful that the White House took one of our primary recommendations to create a comprehensive strategy for biodefense seriously. Uh, they not only released the National Biodefense Strategy about three weeks ago, uh, I think Bob Cadillac talked a lot of this, and they actually have an execution plan, an implementation plan that we look forward to working with them. So again, when we all took this on, all six members, we said we didn't want to be part of a study that gathered dust. We wanted to be part of a study with a short and long-term policy recommendations, and let's build the capacity to get them, get Congress to react and the executive branch to react, and we're grateful that the White House laid that out. And on a side note, we know Bob Cadillac had a critical role in all that. He's been a, pushing this initiative for well over a decade. So we're, uh, kind of reminds me of uh, one of my favorite agencies in the federal government, the Coast Guard. I don't know if you've got any family in the Coast Guard. I think it's the most underappreciated. But think about this model called Semper Paratus. Semper Paratus means always ready. And we think a defense strategy, a comprehensive strategy, will put us on that path, hopefully, to be always ready down the road. I was in the White House for a very few days when the anthrax events occurred 17 years ago. And while we did not have the benefit of a strategy back then, we were somewhat prepared, but not completely. CDC, FBI, state and local labs, others were working on a process to put in place to help to respond to bioterrorism events, but uh, that, was, uh, that shook up the nation after 9-11, then the anthrax, and everybody was waiting for the next form of attack. Well, we got some experts who were involved with those early preparedness efforts. All three responded to the anthrax attacks of 2001. 
Dr. Scott Lillybridge, Dr. Doug Anders, and uh, Dr. Andrew Cannons today. We're grateful for their presence and very interested in their testimony. I can remember, ladies and gentlemen, a press conference where a re journalist said, well, it was the anthrax that was in Senator Daschle's office or in the media office, or was it weaponized? You know, and weaponized is a very unique term. You gotta mill those spores down so they can hang suspended in the air so you can inhale them over time. And I'm not the, wasn't the brightest light bulb in the chandelier when it comes to whether there's a weaponized or non-weaponized anthrax, but all I know is that if it was your loved one that got killed, it was a weapon. And we lost five people during that incident. So we're gonna hear from those who responded to it. We also look forward to hearing from Dr. Rappaport from Tulane. There had been an accidental release of Burkholdia which is an interesting pathogen down in Louisiana, and they, particularly uh, those who have uh, weak immune systems, those who have chronic lung disease, it creates a problem, but it was a pathogen, and frankly, the federal government's response wasn't very, very effective, and we're anxious to hear from him. So we got a couple questions today. We'd like to find some answers. We think the panelists will do it. Uh, what were the problems before the anthrax incident, and uh, let's be honest with ourselves, have we fixed them? Have we built on whatever those fixes were back in 01, 02, and 03? And where are we today in terms of uh, preparedness for this kind of incident? And we're gonna have the benefit of someone we all admire greatly, Dr. Tara O'Toole. She's gonna come back today and address this and talk to us about the future of biodefense. So, got a full program, and I'm gonna turn my co-chair of the panel my friend and colleague, Senator Lieberman, make a few remarks. Go. Thanks. <clears throat> thanks very much, uh, Governor. And uh, thanks to everybody uh, for being here. Um, this is, uh, as Tom said, uh, this is a significant point in our own uh, deliberations and our own activities because uh, the administration did uh, issue, since our last public meeting, a national biodefense strategy, which we recommended and Congress was uh, good enough to uh, mandate. Uh, took the administration a while longer than we hoped, but it came out with it, and, and we think it's a, it's a strong uh, document, uh, no more perfect than anything else that uh, anybody does, particularly the government. But you know, to have the federal government do something these days is really a, a good thing. <laughs> and uh, so we think it's a significant a step forward and one we're grateful for and want to build on. Uh, I, I was uh, honored to be asked to be involved in this when we started out and particularly to join with uh, Tom Ridge uh, and, and others on the commission. It's a small commission, only six. We're, uh, we benefit from the ex-officios over there who actually know what they're talking about and uh, they enrich the work of the panel uh, but I, I've felt from the beginning, and, and my uh, feeling about this has been deepened since we've been at work, that we have a mission here, um, which is, to a certain extent, be 21st century Paul Revere's. And in this case, to warn our government, and to the extent we can, the American people, that uh, a bioterrorist attack is coming, when we don't know, and uh, another uh, infectious disease pandemic is also coming. We don't know, but we can uh, say with a reasonable certainty 
uh, that both uh, uh, events, uh, awful events, will occur. And the question is, how do we, uh, how do we determine to the best of our ability when they're about to occur, how do we prevent them, and if we're unable to prevent them, how do we uh, organize to respond as uh, quickly as possible to them? Uh, the bottom line is we, we don't think we're ready, and the, and the title that um, we've given to this uh, meeting today uh, says it all, Fits and Starts Reactionary Biodefense. Um, we, we've got to we've got to get ahead of the threat. We can't we cannot just be uh, reactionary. And uh, we hope uh, that this really extraordinary group of witnesses we have before us today will um, help us do that. Help us go to the uh, the next level. We do begin with um, our a member of the panel, Senator Tom Daschle, and we begin with a look back at uh, the anthrax attacks of 2001 following the terrorist attack of 9-11. Um, what can you say? Fear, as they say, is a great motivator, and there was tremendous fear after 9-11 and after the anthrax attacks, which uh, generated a lot of uh, activity in the field of biodefense. But I'm afraid um, that certainly with regard to a bioterrorist attack, uh, the, the fear level is down. And this is when a group like this has to continue to be vigilant and persuasive about uh, about getting ready and, and creating a preventive system. Um, the, the anthrax attacks of 2001 affected us in Connecticut. There was a lady named Otilly Lundgren, who was 94, who... Um, who died uh, from inhalational anthrax in November of 2001. She, she wasn't directly a target. She died as a result of cross-contamination of her mail because the original letters with the anthrax in them that went to Tom Daschle and others were mailed using our postal system. So to think that this good lady in her 90s died doing something as normal as going through her mail is, is both tragic and uh, profoundly uh, unsettling. Four other people died as a result of the <clears throat> anthrax events of 2001, and 17 others were infected after exposure, but, but obviously it could have been uh, far worse. And so uh, 17 years later, we want to go back and, and look at uh, those events and what's happened since, and we're very fortunate that uh, Senator Tom Daschle uh, is going to be our lead-off uh, witness. Uh, his office, as you know, received an anthrax letter uh, 17 years ago, and uh, he's really been personally involved in biodefense ever since as part of a broader life commitment to public service. Tom served in the U.S. House of Representatives for eight years and the U.S. Senate for another 18. I had the privilege and the pleasure of serving with him in the Senate for 16 of those years. Uh, he was a great legislator. He was a great leader. And um, um, I'm fortunate to say he became a great friend. Uh, Tom continues to help shape U.S. and global policy in many uh, significant ways. And uh, uh, it's really a pleasure to call on him now to uh, begin this hearing. Tom. 
Well, Joe, thank you very much for that overly generous introduction. And let me thank both uh, our co-chairs for setting the stage and setting the tone for this important day and, uh, and for providing the leadership on the Blue Ribbon Study panel that they have. It's just been a pleasure to work with both of them. And, and uh, I've uh, admired both uh, for a long time, and I have many more reasons to uh, to extend my admiration as a result of this experience. I, I'm sure we can all pick days throughout our lives that we remember with great clarity, uh, as vividly as if they had happened yesterday. Uh, certainly 9-11 is that kind of a day. The day John Kennedy was shot is another day that I recall quite vividly. But October 16th, 2001 was one of those days for me. Uh, a month and five days after 9-11. I, uh, for the first time in my life, uh, during that month between 9-11 and the anthrax attack, I acquired a migraine headache that was quite severe. And I began to get more and more worried that it might be more than just a headache. And so uh, the morning of October 16th, I went to NIH for my first MRI. Never had one before. Uh, very nervous, very concerned that uh, I was going to be told that there was something of consequence behind my migraine and went through the test and uh, the, shortly thereafter as I waited for the results was told that uh, I had nothing to worry about, that I was totally clean and it was just the tension, the pressure and all of the pain that came from lack of sleep and all the anxiety after 9-11. Uh, and so I arrived at my office exuberant and just as thrilled as I could be, having just been given this great medical report, only to be experienced my chief of staff, whose name was Pete Rouse at the time, crashed into the room just as boldly. I mean, the door just open, flung open, and he said, we've got a problem. And he said, uh, one of our interns over in the Hart Building, I was there, I was in the Leader Building uh, at the time, the Leader Office, I should say, which is just off the Senate floor. And every senator has office space allocated through one of the three office buildings, either the Russell, the Dirksen, or the Hart Building. I had always had my Senate office in the Hart Building on the fifth floor. And uh, an intern had just opened uh, the envelope, uh, an aerosolized anthrax, or they they weren't quite sure that's what it was, but uh, it had just exploded in front of her. There were 28 people in the room. And so they immediately shut down the office, closed the doors, kept all those 28 people locked in. And uh, I began talking to them. There was a lot of anxiety, a lot of concern about what, what do we do now. Six people had died uh, due to anthrax exposure in the weeks prior to the 16th of October. And so there was just an enormous amount of anxiety. Uh, as you can imagine, after 9-11, I had uh, probably the best relationship with President Bush that I'd, I've had with any president for that period of time. We called each other back and forth almost daily talking about things. Well, just at that time, he called on another matter, and I told him what had happened. And he was just on his way to a press conference. And so he... Uh, at the press conference uh, made mention of the fact that this anthrax attack took place. And so then 
we had hundreds of press descending on the office demanding information and i was as this is as much as i could trying to acquire as much family information as i could so i could start calling family members to tell them what had just happened there was a lot of confusion a lot of chaos no one really knew what to do i went over and 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 they allowed me to go in and and because i was i was in there i i i then had they they were concerned i had anthrax on my clothing what was amazing is that they really didn't know what to do we we kept them there for this happened in the morning they weren't released until that night and then they were asked to bring their clothing in a garbage bag the next day back to the hill and so each one of them brought their clothing for for proper destruction but there they were anthrax laden clothing brought back into the building and and so we all look like refugees and but there was a doctor from NIH whose name was Greg Martin who was my who will always be my hero and I'm sure maybe somebody in this room recognizes the name but Greg Martin sort of took control and he prescribed Cipro for each of the staff for I can't recall now at least a hundred days it might have been longer and thanks to the enormous professionalism and dedication and care and and empathy that he demonstrated we didn't have one serious medical issue in that time so I was I'll always be forever grateful but then the question is so what do we do now we've got this office in the heart building that has been contaminated by anthrax it had gotten into the HVAC system so they were worried that the spores had spread then to the rest of the building and maybe beyond so we had to shut down the heart building and it stayed shut down for well over a hundred days I don't recall either the exact number of days but it was around a hundred and then they they were trying to figure out how do you detox an entire Senate office building like that and and there were all kinds of elaborate schemes that we that they presented to me one was to put a big plastic cover over the entire building and then and then somehow kill all the spores in that way but they they finally came up with a system but our office had to be totally gutted all the way down to the beams everything was taken out every single piece of furniture the walls the flooring everything was taken out and but over that hundred to 120 days my office and all the offices in heart building had to find extra space they had to find somewhere to go and I have to say I think as I was thinking about that experience what a contrast that was during that period from what I witnessed over the last few weeks on Capitol Hill you had Republicans offering Democrats office space you had office machines a staff anything it was just the most incredible demonstration of bipartisanship of course we had already seen a lot of it coming out of 9-11 people were announcing on the floor and before the press that they weren't Republicans or Democrats they were Americans and we're all pulling together to try to get through this 
And that same thing happened with the anthrax attack. It was such a gratifying experience to be able to to see how how closely knit we all became uh, with this attack. So I I have uh, mixed feelings about that time. I'm I'm I shudder to think what could have happened had uh, had my staff not gotten the, the best care they could. I shudder to think about uh, uh, how much of a tragedy those 28 people might have faced in their lives. And uh, uh, but then I think with enormous gratitude uh, how grateful we should be for the professionals who responded, uh, for the for the kind of attitude. Um, the senators all exp expressed and and uh, and demonstrated, and uh, and and ultimately how we were able to get through it uh, as difficult a time as it was. The investigation, of course, began almost immediately, and I think the one thing you can say with clarity is that their attribution was very very difficult, uh, a major challenge that we still will probably discuss with some uncertainty for years, if not decades, to come. There were 10,000 interviews on six continents. There were 1,024 preliminary investigations of people who might be responsible. There were over 400 in-depth interviews of those who might have been responsible, 2,700 pages of interview notes. The FBI, after all of that effort, concluded that the person responsible uh, for for this attack was a man by the name of Bruce Ivins, a, a microbiologist at Fort Detrick, as most of you probably remember. But that conclusion has been contested by some scientists and by investigative reporters. And so there is still a controversy around who it was who we can uh, officially or confidently uh, blame for this nightmare. On the policy front, I would say that we have made some progress. Uh, I look back with some satisfaction at some of the things we did. But I would also say that the theme of this whole day is certainly apropos for any kind of editorial on the policy progress we've made over the last 17 years. Fits and starts. That applies in this as well. We passed BioShield. BioShield, in my view, was the single most important way to ensure that we send the right message uh, to the private sector about the importance of stockpiling and countermeasures and the importance of a public-private partnership that we're going to need as we go forward. Advanced funding for 10 years was essential, and we did that, and I think we benefited greatly from it. Unfortunately, BioShield has never been reauthorized, and so we struggle today with replicating that success uh, after the first 10 years. We spent over $60 billion in the first decade, and that was a start as well. And I look back with some satisfaction at how much we, we were able to do with, uh, with $60 billion. Uh, looking back, $60 billion over 10 doesn't really sound all that significant anymore, but at the time, it was really our first major commitment uh, in, in public funding to address our needs uh, more effectively. There is much more heightened awareness in organizational reform, and I would say heightened awareness may be the thing we can look back on with the greatest degree of, of confidence. Uh, Congress 
has totally revised the way mail is answered and handled. As you know, it's all opened off-site, off-campus, and and uh, screened and monitored very, very carefully before it gets to a congressional office. We passed in 2006 the Pandemic All Hazards Preparation Preparedness Act, PAPA. That has been, um, I think, uh, as we look back, uh, uh, a very significant contribution in public policy with the creation of ASPR. Uh, and, uh, and of course, BARDA with Rick here, it's a clear illustration of the success. And with his leadership in particular, Rick uh, Bright has done an outstanding job. And I'm, I'm so pleased that we've got the capable people working today in these key positions that we're going to need going forward. And, and, and I guess I would just close uh, sharing with my two co-chairs how I look at uh, public policy going forward. There is a lot of unfinished work. And I would list four things in particular. EPA is still not in charge of environmental doc, uh, uh, decontamination and remedi remediation. We still don't have a, 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 an agency uh, that is solely responsible. That was our recommendation. Uh, number 10, 10B to be exact, when we uh, issued our, our blueprint for biodefense. Um, secondly, there's still no study of those exposed to biological agents. That was 10C. We still have no real appreciation from a medical point of view, from a pathological point of view. Uh, and, and I think that's something we really have to, have to acknowledge has not been uh, uh, an area that has gotten the necessary priority. Leadership is still, I think, very much in question. Uh, our recommendation, of course, was to uh, was to uh, to designate the vice president as our leader in charge, as the person who had the convening authority and had the capacity to reach out to the entire uh, 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 system of, 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 of governance, uh, whether it's legislative, executive, judicial, uh, to, to, to be able to, to, to bring some continuity, some degree of, 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 of balance and, and some recognition of the importance of coordination uh, at the governmental level. We don't have that today. Uh, the, the new bio, uh, uh, Blue Ribbon, all right, the new uh, biodefense recommendation, the, the National Strategic Study, has designated HHS, the Department of Human Services, with that responsibility. And uh, I've been asked many times, is that going to work? I guess we don't know. But I'm certainly willing to give it a, give it a shot because uh, we have Bob Cadlick largely organizing that effort, and uh, I, I can't think of anybody more qualified, more able to, to take on that role than, than Bob Cadlick. So because I have so much confidence in the individual, uh, I have more confidence than I might otherwise have in the institutional approach that people are using, or that, 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 that the, we will be using uh, in this new biodefense strategy. And, and, and finally, there still needs to be a better mechanism for determining attribution. As I said, we have no guarantee. We still have all the answers about what happened, why, and who it was that was the perpetrator. Um, we've made some progress with the FBI and DHS uh, uh, Memorandum of Understanding on the National uh, Bioforensic Analysis Center. That's a good start, uh, but we need an authorization to ensure that that memorandum of understanding can be locked in 
and that we have the kind of certainty and the guarantee and the confidence that we're going to be able to move forward. So those are some of the things that I think still need to be addressed. There are many others, and that's why I think our recommendations uh, have been uh, have been so critical. We, as, as both of our co-chairs have noted, uh, have a role today that we probably didn't have in 2013 and 14 when we started, and that is to elevate these issues to a greater degree, to advocate where we can, to do as much as possible to, to nudge those and to create a higher priority around many of the recommendations we've made, and hopefully as a result of our work again today, we can do more of that. With that, to my co two co-chairs, let me turn it back to you. Uh, thanks very much, Tom. That was uh, your recollection of that day in the immediate aftermath. I thought was really riveting, and I remember it while well, I was in the Hart Building. So, was also out for that period of 100 days or so. And it was uh, um, we were in, in some sense in a daze in that period of time. Um, but uh, uh, and I think the significance of the anthrax attack in our minds grew over time after 9-11. Uh, of course, there was great fear that it was the beginning of a much wider series of coordinated attacks. Um, so th that was riveting. Also, I, th I appreciate very much your um, constructive evaluation of where we've, where we've come in the time. We, we have about 20 minutes to engage in uh, conversation with Tom, so I'll just begin and then uh, yield to uh, Governor Ridge, the, the first thing to say is what probably everybody in this room knows is that the bioterrorist threat remains real. I mean, in the sense that we know from publicly available intelligence so uh, sources and uh, from statements made that there are nation states that, that have offensive uh, bio uh, weapons programs. And, um, you know, Al Qaeda and uh, ISIS have made very clear that they're, they're working on such programs, and they consider them to be uh, um, a viable uh, offensive weapon. So this, that's why I said at the beginning, uh, sadly, uh, we're at a, in one of those, it's not um, if, but when uh, moments. Tom, I was really uh, interested in um, the second of your uh, proposals uh, going forward, which is that there really hasn't been yet a study of those uh, exposed to the biological agents. I just want to ask you to go on, uh, if you would, a little bit more about that. I don't know whether you know uh, whether in other cases around the world where there have been biological attacks, maybe some of our ex-officios do, whether there ever been has been a study. And, and what you think, uh, we, how we would benefit from such a study? Well, Joe, I, I, I don't know the degree to which this information may be available elsewhere. I don't think we've done anywhere near the kind of work necessary to create the medical understanding, the psychological understanding, the maybe even the genetic understanding of what happens to people exposed. Um, you know, and to your point about uh, uh, this likely to occur again. You, we had a ricin attack uh, less right. than 10 days ago at right. DOD. And so we had, you know, this is not something that's history. This is happening, uh, this is happening now. And yet uh, our ability to, to uh, deal with the issues involving those who were exposed, I think could, 
could benefit greatly from more research on what are the effects, what, what should we know about the physiological consequences of something like this happening going forward. Um, again, I think, I don't know that anybody disagrees with that. My concern has always been, as we all can testify, I think, uh, my concern is that while there's never opposition, there's just no energy behind it. There's no prioritization. There's no, we, we have so few champions as we commonly lament in this room and on this, uh, on this commission. Uh, we need a champion, and one of the champion uh, motivations should be more information, more, more understanding, more application of what we know to circumstances as they present themselves. And I think we could benefit a great deal if we took seriously that recommendation. Thanks, Tom. That's an, that's an important suggestion. This, uh, I said I have taken the calling this a commission and not a panel to this commission. That might be something we want to focus on in, in the next uh, chapter of our history. I, I wonder, while we're on this, just briefly, if any of the ex officios want to add anything on this question of studying the uh, impact of um, um, a bioterrorist attack on victims. Uh, if not, oh, uh, Scooter, go ahead, Mr. Libby. So I compliment the excellent presentation. Uh, I was in the White House during during this, uh, and two things stuck out to me beyond the attribution problem, which has already been uh, mentioned. One was that as a defense matter, there was no profile of what this attack was or might be. Uh, and I, I used the word attack, and I, I should correct myself. It was not an attack, really. It was a threat or a warning. I mean, it came in an envelope that said, this is anthrax, go take Cipro, if I recall. Um, so this was not really an attack. An attack would have been much more horrific. Um, but we had no idea what would follow it, which makes it very hard. And the lack of attribution, if you connect that to if it had been a foreign state actor or if the next one is a foreign state actor or a foreign group, which doesn't step forward credibly to acknowledge it, uh, it would be very um, inhibiting to try and come up with a real policy to respond to it. So. Without real attribution, it's very hard to get, imagine our national debate if the president wanted to strike back at a state that we had 75% confidence to put a strange number on it, uh, had been behind the attack. The other, um, which is humbling, is that there had been four national commissions in the 1990s that focused on this problem. And it said the very words you just used, um, not if, but when, we would have a bio attack and had very large um, examples. There was the dark winter um, exercise headed by CSIS, um, former Clinton De Deputy Defense Secretary, Hamry, um, which did the, found a study with a million dead, which I think we've referred to earlier in this process. So it's humbling to be on a commission focusing on this problem and how do you change uh, the results, the non-results that that group had before BioShield uh, came along. They had some use in getting the White House ready. And the third and final point, which uh, Governor Ridge observed, was how slow the bureaucracy was to react under, you know, the theme of what you're saying is reactionary. I remember sitting in meetings um, a week or two after um, this, which was five or six weeks after 9-11, and the NSC was asking part of the bureaucracy to respond with a timeline to take a certain action that they thought would be corrective. 
uh, and the, um, the person from the agency responded, well, I think in two weeks we could get you a memo on when we can really address this problem. <laughs> so, uh, Governor Ridge, you had to survive through all of that uh, bureaucratic delay, but there's a warning there, too, I think. Uh, <clears throat> thanks. Uh, that was very helpful. Governor? Well, I'm glad my colleague uh, was able to share uh, such a personal story with you. Uh, I suspect you think about that often, um, and that your 28 colleagues in that room as well. Uh, I just want to make a couple observations. We can move to the panel, and unless there's other questions from my colleagues, yeah, please go ahead. I Go ahead, yeah, I just wanted to address the, uh, the, the excellent point that uh, Senator Lieberman made. First, Senator Daschle, that was very moving, and um, I thought it was really important that you did it that way. And I think that raises one of the reasons why such a study that Senator Lieberman suggested is so important. If you personalize the issue, if you do a study of the impact on individuals, I think it has more political resonance and gets people's attention on it. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the point earlier about, uh, oh yeah, let's uh, let's prepare for something that may happen in 15 years. There's a, there's a last, lack of uh, political urgency to doing something like that. But when you present it the way that you have, and also you present the specific impacts on individuals, I think that's important and has value. The second reason is just in terms of prevention for future problems. Senator Daschle, you, uh, you, you quite um, movingly laid out how the entire mail system for how the U.S. government receives outside information has changed as a result of what we saw in that. Perhaps there are other things we can learn from studying what's happened in the past to prevent these kinds of attacks in the future. Anything else? Yes, please. Um, so I was in the Office of Science and Technology Policy at, at the time that the anthrax attacks occurred, and we'll call them attacks, um, events. Um, and there are a number of people in the room who were also involved in trying to develop procedures um, for handling the mail, for sanitizing, which it's not really done, but uh, to some extent lessening the, the threat involved in anything coming through the mail. Um, but the number of steps that were ad hoc that involved developing um, procedures, many, many, many meetings to say, what would it take to wrap a whole building in plastic, like the Brentwood Mail Handling Facility? Uh, the number of distribution centers and mail processing centers that were closed down forever, and the changes in procedure that had to take place as a result of that. We worked very closely every day with the U.S. Postal Service, with Tom Day, and others to figure out what do you do to protect the safety of the mail handlers. Um, and then we, we've talked since then about how the mail system could be used for distributing drugs for treatment of people. So there are all these circles and discussions that took place, but as you pointed out, many of those have not been written in, into, into official or either um, policies, responsibilities. There, we don't have the coordination now that we even had then on an ad hoc basis. Uh, and a number of those have been addressed both in the Blue Ribbon Study Panel reports and also the national strategy to some extent. Um, but there needs to be concrete action that takes place. Yeah, and I would just add one point um, to this emphasis on doing some follow-up studies on these personal effects 
um, and is to add in the socioeconomics impacts of what these really mean. So there's the personal part about what it does to our lives, um, but there's also a larger component about um, what's it doing for people missing work, what's that doing to local economies, uh, the cost of the recovery, children being out of school, does that set back their education? So when we go into countries like in Bangladesh and look at a disease outbreak um, and really talk to families and what it's done, sometimes it's a generational setback on some of these issues. So I wouldn't just limit it um, narrowly to the affected people, the individuals, but to kind of their broader range of their societal impacts around that group. Because those economic costs could be huge uh, compared to the medical cost or just a few days of missing work. I mean, they have big ramifications that we've seen for most naturally occurring disease outbreaks, but even intentional ones, that societal effect, travel, trade, um, education systems. Ken? Just one sort of factual follow-up, uh, Senator Daschle. You, you, you highlighted that the 28 of you went home with your clothes that you were wearing that day, bagged them up, you know, back to your homes, your families, then bagged them up and brought them back in the next day. You know, I'm no expert, but that doesn't seem to be an optimal way of approaching this kind of situation. And then just sort of when you think about, as you pointed out, we'd already lost five or six people by that time to anthrax. And this is on the heels of however many commissions in the last, uh, the last decade. Did you get the sense or was your point that there really wasn't even a protocol for something as basic as that? I mean, they kept, it wasn't like this was a, they only had two minutes to decide this. They had you all day and all evening. I'm just wondering if that's sort of an anecdote that highlights exactly. where things were or weren't at that point. Exactly, Ken. There was there was no evacuation uh, uh, mechanism. There there was no thought, to my knowledge, given to just how you address the aftermath of an incident like that. And uh, I'll never. Not only did we bring garbage bags filled with our clothing back, we brought them into the Capitol building because the Hart Building had been shut down. So we actually brought them into the first floor of the Hart Building. I'll never, I, I go by that room still today and I, I think, my goodness, there we were. I mean, we all had our bags. And, uh, and then they, they just took them all and I, don't, I guess they destroyed them somehow. But, but it was just a remarkable demonstration of how little preparation had been given, thought given to just how you address a circumstances like this. And, and, uh, I'm sure now there is a protocol, uh, let's hope, but I must tell you, I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm sure there is one, uh, but it would be interesting to explore just how much more detail a plan for not only evacuation, but remediation uh, exists today. Uh, before we uh, introduce our, our first panel, I want to thank you, Senator. Uh, I'd like to make a couple quick observations, if I might. <clears throat> I guess, Scooter, you and I probably had a couple conversations when this was going on with the Vice President. I always look back to those days, and frankly, the government back then wouldn't have had, it was post-anthrax, but without the Vice President's support, we wouldn't have gone as deep as we did during President Bush's at, uh, and subsequent administrations where we put $60 billion more into the 
into the biodefense, uh, but that's also a challenge because we put 60 billion in there, 50 appointees relative to somewhere around biodefense, 50 political appointees, billions more money, and we still don't have a unified budget. We still don't have anybody in charge. We really have nobody setting priorities. And that's one of the very reasons, as, as, as challenging as it was for the families that lost loved ones and for the senator and his colleagues to go through that crisis, that's, I mean, that's really at the basis of one of the primary reasons we decided to pull this together, this blue panel. And you think about it for a moment, the response historically, it's post-crisis. Well, we just put more money on it. Well, there's more money and there's more political appointees, but you still don't have a budget cut. You still don't know who's spending what on what. The other challenge back then was when right after this crisis, CDC was holding press conferences and HHS was holding press conferences and the FBI was holding press conferences and I think the body politic looked at Washington, D.C. and said, well, isn't there one spokesperson? I mean, is everybody doing their own thing in order to respond to this crisis? And with the help of others, we finally pulled everybody into the Roosevelt Room and said, from now on, the press conferences will be conducted from the White House while of everybody giving their point of view and making their public contribution. But the government needs to speak with one voice. And that's kind of a metaphor for the, 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 the Blue Ribbon Commission. We need to have a plan. We need to have a strategy. We need to have one implementation plan. And what is somewhat remarkable about that incident is within the first couple of weeks, I was in the White House. I've got the intelligence briefing, and they listed all the pathogens. Now, this is the intelligence community was saying to the federal government, these are the pathogens you should worry about. The nation states have them, the terrorists have them. Well, one was anthrax, so that information had been out there to all these other agencies long before I got the briefing, and yet when anthrax occurred, they're taking clothes and garbage bags back into the, into the Senate building. Oh, the other happened to be Ebola. Now, fast forward 15 years and tell us how, how prepared we were for Ebola. So again, we saw that disconnect way back then in 01 between what the intelligence community was saying about the nation states and the terrorist group and the rest of the federal government. Again, no unified policy, no strategy. We've got plenty of political appointees. We're spending billions, but we're not doing it very effectively. And so I think it just kind of underscores The reason for the Blue Ribbon, for this panel, and not that we're breathless about it, we're not alarmist about it, but guess what, folks? Anthrax wasn't a contagion. People forget about that. I mean, we could come up with all kinds of red cells, particularly those of you in the community, if you were advising a nation state or a terrorist organization, if you wanted to bring massive death and destruction, a weapon of mass destruction, which could be biological in the United States of America, you don't have to be a scientist in order to figure out what you, how you would want to do it. So I just want to underscore how important it was for us to have Senator Heschel talk to you about that experience. But just flash back to where we were. Intelligence community was telling these other agencies what we ought to worry about, what we ought to be prepared for, but we weren't. Well-intentioned groups from disparate agencies publicly facing, but no concentrated single public message to the public. And so the panelists over the next uh, couple hours are going to talk to us a little bit about what's been done since then and where we need to go.
That's why we asked Senator Dashwood to relive that nightmare in public for all of you. It just was a reminder. Oh, by the way, since that time, we're still talking about if you had to distribute Cipro, how do we get it out there? Now, again, I'm not sure we got a distribution plan. So there are a lot of things at, at risk and a lot of things that we need to improve upon, but uh, I think our panelists today are going to help us uh, better understand what we've done since that period of time and where we need to go in the future. So, Senator Dash, we thank you so much for reliving that nightmare for us publicly. Yes. <clears throat> Thanks, Tom. I mean, bottom line, uh, what our purpose is to see if we can help both um, suggest, advocate, push, cajole, and where possible coerce uh, our government and our people to go from uh, reactionary biodefenses to uh, proactive, uh, preemptive, preventive uh, biodefenses. And, uh, Tom, you've helped. Uh, us by your recollections, your suggestions in doing that, and the witnesses today, I'm sure, will do the same. By the way, I don't want to, I just have to add a little anecdote. Hope it brings a smile to your face. When you were talking about you took, you're going to take plastic and cover the uh, whole room, I'm not responsible for recommending duct tape there. Trust me. I just, I just, I just want you all to know that. It was not, it was, okay, I'm sorry. Some of you probably don't understand that. It was going to be color coded duct tape, by the way, but that's another story all to you, but I've got to tell you, really rather remarkable. The first panel, uh, let me introduce the first panel. Dr. Scott Lillibridge is director of the Center for Global Health and Innovation at Texas A&M, former special assistant for national security and emergency management at HHS. And what I also think is rather interesting is that he worked with uh, Dr. George on her dissertation and we have promised Dr. Asha George that we weren't going to ask any questions with regard to that project or your presence. But we'll talk to you privately about we that. We still need one final signature. <laughs> um, we're going to have uh, Dr. Randy Murch. Dr. Murch, you're here. Thank you for being here. He's uh, FBI, created the FBI WMD Forensic Investigative Unit. He's been part of the Institute for Defense Analysis, which is an organization I was really privileged to work with uh, for several years, and again, has a resume of public service, of effective public service that is uh, well, reflective of the quality of men and women we have uh, working on behalf of uh, the public writ large. And let's see, and, uh, and we have Dr. Cannons. Uh, and there's so much of this federal-state partnership that is critical to us. And Dr. Andrew Cannons is the uh, Florida State Public Health Laboratory Director. And, uh, you know, you can't really secure the country from inside the Beltway. We've got a lot of assets here. Uh, but how we distribute the people and the resources and the information down to the states and the locals is how we make uh, the federal system and how we make us all safer. And so we're privileged to have all three of you here. And uh, Dr. Lillibridge, we're going to ask you to start the panel discussion. Thank you. Thank you, and I appreciate all the work the panel has done, and um, it's great to hear this continued interest after almost 20 years. For me, um, yeah, I was invited to speak uh, and relate my perspectives on the anthrax adventure, our preparedness, the fits and starts, and of biodefense. 
Uh, from my perspective, uh, really the history, the modern history, really started in about 1999. It's when we opened the doors at CDC on the Bioterrorism Preparedness and Response Program. <clears throat> at that time, we had um, $129 million to start with. It was a lot of money in those days. And um, we took the idea that we would try to plug vulnerabilities at the state and local level. Uh, we would shore up um, laboratory networks, surveillance, training, awareness, and planning. It was a large program, but wasn't uh, exactly uh, huge by scope, by today's scope and scale. Uh, I was greeted at that time by my colleagues who said, why don't I get a real job? It was not the most popular thing at that time. And I remember the naivete of the press and the media and, and the folks at that time. Uh, in the first press conference, they asked me, what was our position on smallpox? And um, I could have said a lot of things about the vaccine development, about immunity, about uh, diagnostics. And I said, we're against it. <laughs> For which the press went away and wrote it down. And uh, I thought, uh, I wow, this... we have a future in politics. <laughs> we're against it. And um, anyway. Uh, despite the initial skepticism, we had a committed group at CDC, and we went to work, and uh, we had some uh, luminaries in government, and we had some champions. I heard that this morning. We had some champions at the time. D.A. Henderson, Mike Osterholm, Tara O'Toole, Phil Russell on the outside uh, were pushing hard to sound the clarion call and keep this in the media and public awareness. Um, D.A. Henderson really knew how to market a program. Uh, Richard Preston's book was out. This added to uh, an awareness, The Hot Zone, and um, we had a uh, President Clinton at the time was highly interested in that and uh, began to push towards uh, in gre greater interest in biodefense. Um, we, in 1999, uh, December, we opened the office at CDC. We were in a hurry. We picked a number of pathogens, not knowing and not having relationships with uh, terrorist organizations to exchange information, we just picked the vulnerabilities, um, which is way different than picking what's most likely to happen. We looked at the vulnerability of the civilian population. And um, anthrax and smallpox were the top of our list, so that uh, it was uh, identification, vaccines, awareness, and so forth. And we began to move on our program. It was about a three to five year infrastructure building program. And at that time, that sold well to, the, to both sides of the aisle, the states and the local health departments, that this was an infrastructure building process. We were going to upgrade labs, surveillance, uh, awareness around a wide range of uh, infectious diseases. And uh, we moved out uh, smartly on that. Um, we uh, were surprised, of course, um, uh, with uh, when the anthrax happened, but we were glad that that was the first assay we had sent out to the state health departments. Uh, it was identified, and many of these were identified uh, at the state and local level. Um, I lived through this with a, a couple of you in the room, um, uh, Senator Daschle, Governor Ridge. We had some late night meetings at different places around the Capitol. And uh, I'll just give you kind of my emotional kind of uh, feeling of uh, sort of putting the science, the policy, the agencies together. Uh, my role at the time was I was uh, a staff uh, special assistant to the secretary, so it gave me access to uh, various corridors that where decisions were made. 
I was summoned by uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning one morning to go to the Hill to brief Senator Daschle and Trent Lott. And I remember saying, are they there? I said, he goes, yeah, they're there. Just go tell them. Go brief them. I go, brief them on what? He goes, you know, what's going on? And I said, okay, if I can, uh, let me get there and we'll do this. And um, uh, I made my way up uh, in the middle of the night and um, found um, Senator Daschle and Lott in the room with Sergeant Arms. And uh, we, we sat down and began to talk through what anthrax meant, uh, how it was spread, what the ramifications were. And uh, in talking, uh, it became clear to me that um, uh, there was not a serious federal mobilization at that time. The local health department had, hadn't been notified uh, of all the parameters and the exposure. Uh, people in the Hart Building came from multiple counties and states that day, so we, we now had people exposed all over the country. And I had this sinking feeling to say, wow, we have really got some gap here in terms of what we have to do in a hurry. Um, uh, we called the Commissioner of Health for the district to come in and um, uh, notified the Office of Emergency Preparedness. And, and a couple things began to happen. Um, sorry about your bags on there, but uh, I, I hope they, uh, it all works out. And, and, uh, but um, that was a, a real eye-opener for me because we had now had multiple agencies. We had cleanup with EPA. We had FBI. We had a forensic investigation. Uh, we had state and local health departments involved, and we had civilian populations at risk. And uh, uh, for our standpoint at CDC at that time and HHS was trying to deal with the aftermath uh, rather than the prevention uh, of civilian populations. Um, I remember late night meetings in the White House um, that um, uh, stand up, knock down, drag out fights, uh, Governor Ridge brokered between HHS and law enforcement about how do you share information at the time of, of the uh, crisis? At some part, this was a law enforcement investigation that was held in secrecy. And in the other point of HHS, we had a public health emergency where we needed information to make decisions on prophylaxis, medications, and so forth. Um, that was a contact sport. I thank you for brokering that, uh, those meetings. Um, so where are we? And what do we learn from uh, anthrax? Well, we came out of that thinking a couple things uh, kind of um, still remain with me, and that is uh, communications is key, and that we were constantly eclipsed by a news cycle that exceeded our ability scientifically or managerially to keep up with the, the emergency response. For example, I called it the CNN surveillance system. A patient goes to hospital, doctors have a press conference, they call, White House calls HHS, what's going on? HHS calls CDC, and it's completely backwards how it's supposed to work. Actually, you're supposed to get surveillance from the field, and so we were, we were constantly, um, constantly surprised on that. Communications was key. We needed a better way to keep pace with uh, information. And that led us to the next thing, is that we, we really were not at HHS in many places in government, uh, organized in a ICS, incident command system, or an operations center. The, the military and FEMA had done this instinctively, but the other agencies that had to be drawn in were not organized in that fashion. And within a year or two, uh, CDC, HHS, and others kind of evolved into 
uh, a better system to handle information and validate uh, claims and uh, uh, look at situational awareness. Um, the third thing that's really important was that we validated the, the initial parts of the program, and that was state and local assistance is extremely important, building capacity. Uh, I can't tell you how many times the local physicians and uh, response laboratory, laboratory response network, identified the early case and then substantiated the first range of diagnostics to allow us to begin uh, prophylactic medications to populations. That happened time and time again. Uh, it wasn't perfect, but it, it did show me that the investment in surveillance, laboratory training and awareness at the state and local health department level was extremely important. And the first thing, the fourth thing was that uh, this is a crime public health emergency. Uh, it's also a strategic emergency. And as um, uh, uh, Governor Ridge mentioned, uh, we had EPA cleanup, we had the White House involved, we had national security. Uh, virtually, at the end of the day, we had almost every agency involved in some piece of this response. So, so how have we done uh, with the money and uh, the programs we've done over the last 20 years? I, I think we've done very well um, to a certain point. We have got on the beach at Omaha Beach and D-Day, we have broken through but we have not yet taken Europe. So I think there's a, a few things that I want to mention that I think are, are things that we can, uh, we can work on. Uh, we have done well in galvanizing constituents uh, of U.S. departments and agencies. However, um, we face different biologic threats today than we understood in 1999. They are more complex. They are larger in scale. They are more global and strategic than we were thinking 20 years ago. We were thinking about vulnerability to specific agents. We weren't thinking of national scope, uh, synthetic biology, genetic sequencing, manipulation of uh, resistance patterns, and so forth. Uh, this has gotten much more complex. So how do we address this, and kind of where are we, some of the challenges that I see coming up? Uh, and uh, I was pleased to see some of these in the, in the recent study. Uh, it's already been mentioned that um, one-year funding or intermittent funding just won't do the trick. This is a large-scale operation. Five, ten-year programs are going to be needed to build the kind of collective infrastructure that's important in dealing with these kinds of threats. Uh, number two, um, I don't think we've sufficiently engaged a private industry. Uh, I think we have a good start, but part of that relates to the scope and scale of the money involved. Um, I don't think we have enough resources invest to attract the best and brightest out of the industry. I still think uh, we're a private enterprise company, and most of the expertise that uh, we need uh, resides in a hybrid of the private sector, academia, and, and other, other key organizations around the United States. Um, I don't think we've aggregated our resources sufficiently to really uh, manage our stake with the private industry to get them involved. Many of these companies, um, uh, uh, we lack the political will sometimes to uh, enforce and follow up IP that we own or to get them to help uh, develop preparedness strategies. Um, many are multinational that have uh, uh, the vaccines or the antidotes and uh, countermeasures that we need. Uh, so it's a very complex thing, but a key to that is really having the political will and sufficient funding to steer industry and get them involved in this. 
The other thing is that, um, you know, I just came back from Congo, uh, long enough to be out of the incubation period on Ebola. You know, and it just hit me that, you know, we really don't have America's team. I mean, what we have is we have a couple uh, Americans in different response groups there. We have a few people working with the UN. But this is uh, fairly interesting for the following reason. This Ebola continues to spread in northern Congo. It's in the area of a conflict zone. It makes it hard to do surveillance and follow-up. It is in some ways perhaps the harbinger of the perfect storm of uh, spreading epidemic that's contagious, that we can't access the population. So it has all the features where uh, national security of the United States is, has a vested interest, and we on the state side are, are deeply concerned that it stay and get con controlled in Africa. So, and what I mean by this is that, you know, I see we're doing a great job with different agencies and departments building ac activities, research agendas, and um, different teams. But what we don't have is a, sort of a, a coordinated thing. We mentioned that before. I, I doubt that in 1960, 61, we could have got to the moon in 69 had we approached uh, the moonshot with uh, 50 to 20 different agencies that all worked on their own prerogatives, had their own funding, and it wasn't <coughs> coordinated centrally. I just don't see how we would have done that without a NASA and uh, a central organization, central organized uh, structure to accomplish that goal. So that's one. And the last thing I want to mention is leadership. That comes up a lot is, you know, we've talked about the vice president. We've talked about HHS. We've talked about other agencies periodically or new agencies. To me, you know, after being in the field for uh, more than three decades on major outbreaks and uh, standing up the, the bioterrorism program, uh, working as the OFDA medical director for the USAID's uh, Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance. W what I think the solution for me is more the organization, build the organization, rather than to name the responsible party. I'm happy if it's the president, I'm happy or it's the vice president, or HHS. But Building and funding the proper organization is so critical to get capacity to come out of the spigot when you need these complex things done. So if I were to think ahead what this might look like in the future, uh, I, you know, I would see that we'd have an organization that was uh, more corporate, perhaps uh, scientific in origin rather than civil service or military, uh, needs to run on an informational background, backbone like Amazon, IBM, or Microsoft that's capable of uh, computational biology, genomics, artificial intelligence, as well as able to use blockchain accountability for all packages, uh, medications, and so forth. The size and scope needs to be, I think, more like the Manhattan Project rather than a small program in a discrete agency or department. I think it's going to be overarching. The uh, organizational structure I talked about, um, the kind of steps that I think would make a difference to me as a bureaucrat, our uh, former bureaucrat, I would say, um, is to con if you don't consolidate biodefense budgets uh, across agencies and departments, or if you do that, 90% of your problem in coordination will be solved. Um, if you give people disparate budgets and autonomy over their budgets, 
you can get you can't build the pizza if you hand out the slices. <laughs> While uh, continuing to what works domestically, I think we have to understand that most of the threats that we face are global in nature. They're emerging diseases in faraway places. They are uh, nation-state actors, and, and, uh, and we have this new phenomena of manipulation and synthetic biology that can pop up virtually anywhere. And last, you know, I, I think uh, like NAFTA and taking another stab at redirecting NAFTA and relationships with Canada and Mexico, I think uh, it, it's time to take a second look at revitalizing components of the UN. We need neutral vehicles to get into regions of the world. Right now, and uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the UN is doing a great job of coordinating, providing an umbrella for organizations, providing support, putting funding, and uh, uh, managing, uh, keeping their finger in the dike of the outbreak. It's the first time I've really seen the UN become operational. And it gave me hope that probably within the regional framework of the UN, we could probably put some investment with American leadership and uh, get some bang for a buck and get access to a lot of these remote areas. Uh, and again, keeping what works domestically on the preparedness side of the states and local areas that we validated with some international traction and ability to uh, respond, I think, would be highly important. With that, I think I'll close. I think I've um, said enough, but those are some of my reflections. And, uh, Can we wait until the conclusion of all panelists? Dr. Merch? Well, gentlemen, thank you for having me again. Good to see you. I'm sorry to disappoint that I'm not Doug Anders. I'm here as the uh, grandfather emeritus of uh, uh, grandfather emeritus of the uh, the forensic and attribution program of the U.S. and really the world. And what I'd like to do is begin because I can't possibly address the kinds of points he would and the experience he's had where the FBI program was and, and is today. I can provide you some some background, which I think is important, but also sort of the then and now. So. First of all, uh, this is the, probably the only program in our national biodefense program that actually was before. It was not reactionary. Um, it actually began in 1996. We had absolutely nothing at all uh, in the way of forensics and attribution uh, support uh, for uh, biological, but also nuclear and chemical and radiological as well. Uh, we actually did create that uh, with the support of Director Free and Attorney General Reno, both very strong advocates and supporters and spokes, uh, spokespersons for us. And it was really, the timing was excellent because it, it was in the lead up to the 1996 Olympic Games. And actually my, my first co-conspirator in this program is the gentleman to my right uh, when we engaged CDC, how fortuitous uh, that the games were in Atlanta at the time. I actually began thinking about this program in 1981, 1982 as a young agent in the Los Angeles field office working counterterrorism and WMD terrorism as part of my portfolio, uh, hoping that I'd get to the lab someday, and that's why I was hired into the FBI to go to the lab and become a forensic expert. And timing an opportunity uh, came about, as did the revelation of the so former Soviet program, Aum Shinrikyo, another bestseller, The Cobra Event by Richard Preston that was read by President Clinton and called over to FBI headquarters and asked, what are we doing about this? What do we have uh, that you're doing and, and building? And we actually had something in motion at the time. That book was based on the program I was building. And also uh, the famous episode with Secretary Cohen holding up a bag of Domino sugar, saying if this were anthrax and got loose, it would kill us all. So those are some of the prompts that, that really helped us uh, 
jumpstart the program along with a special event in Atlanta. The initial design of the program was intended to integrate forensic science with a range of scientific disciplines, which are primarily biomedical and more of traditional, the traditional scientists, microbiology, virology, epidemiology, and so forth. We, uh, we also had to be cognizant of and sensitive to the legal requirements, admissibility of novel evidence into the court, of course, through Daubert, which uh, Mr. Weinstein is well acquainted with. Uh, we realized uh, back in the late 80s, I did uh, understand that we had some capability in the Department of uh, Energy Lab, National Labs, primarily Livermore and Los Alamos. We knew some of the, the principal scientists there uh, that have since uh, retired and moved on. Uh, we understood that there were other capabilities in the U.S. government that we could leverage, including the Department of Defense and some in academia. We knew that we had to, you know, chart a course for increasingly uh, more informative science, and we had to ensure proper forensic validation, which is not what the national labs, the Department of Defense, and academia understands. Uh, we actually did early on, uh, in about the 1997 budget year around in there, attempted to pursue a facility uh, that would be dedicated to this kind of uh, program uh, that was prohibited by the Marine Corps, who are a host at the Quantico Marine Corps base. They didn't want the nasty stuff on their territory, so we were disallowed. However, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense by the name of Sal Bosco, he was in the ChemBio program, stepped up. He found me, offered support for the Olympic Games, as well as providing access to USAMRID and the Naval, uh, Bethesda Naval Medical Center, and one of their programs there. And so um, what we have today, that was the background where the roots began. Now we have, uh, from the Hazardous Materials Response Unit created in 96 to the Strategic Response Unit that we have today, is the leading program in the world for forensics and attribution support. Okay. So now let me um, move into some of the points that were captured in some of the questions that you had that I, I saw ahead of time and try to get you from the, before uh, 10.01 through 10.01 to now as best as I can relate to you. First of all, um, we started with the existing presumptive field testing. That's been since discarded. We usually move all the samples. The FBI moves the samples to the laboratory for uh, presumptive confirmatory and deep characterization. That's evolved very quickly through the years with various generations of science and technology and understanding the problem sets they have to deal with. Um, we still leverage clinical methods, uh, especially those in the laboratory response network. I'll get back to that because that was actually a Jerry Parker and Randy Murch idea that CDC and AEPHL uh, took up and ran with. Uh, Asha George was heavily involved in that, as was Scott Littlebridge. Where we were uh, years ago, uh, 17 years ago, with uh, 1001 and the kinds of assays has progressed to whole genome sequencing with very sophisticated bioinformatics. It's not a, uh, a one-size-fits-all solution, but it's very much more advanced and informative than it was in the day. Uh, now, the, um, the FBI and its, and its cohorts in the federal government are pursuing proteomics as an adjunct to genomics to see if we get deeper characterization toward more precise attribution, source attribution. Um, What's it called? Sorry, Doctor. Proteomics. Proteomics. Proteomics, studying the proteins that are produced by organisms, which are then translated from the genomics into action molecules, okay, which have probably more information, get a deeper, more precise uh, characterization toward attribution. Uh, 
There probably is a need to, for better integration of biosurveillance, so we understand natural, deliberate, accidental, better, cheaper, faster, right? which we're not quite there yet. Scott and I used to wrangle about that from the very beginning. We knew that was a critical component, understanding that as close to time zero as possible. We're better, but we're not quite there yet, and integrating with a forensic investigation. Another, um, oh, another uh, uh, priority that's not only sh uh, that of the FBI, but it's federal partners as well as international partners, is better characterization of, of plant and, and marine biotoxins. Uh, there are very significant science challenges to that that haven't been overcome yet, and they are potential powerful weapons. Something we didn't have before, and I'm not quite sure Doug Anders could be a better uh, discussant for this, is our ability to uh, exploit uh, traditional physical evidence that's contaminated with a bioweapon or chemical uh, hazard. We have that capability today that we didn't have in the past. What is attribution forensically that's validated right now, fingerprint, human DNA, and so forth, is accepted by the courts. But now we have that kind of capability that we didn't have before. And lastly, we built uh, for this, this aspect of it is providing the scientific basis f to establish legitimacy, publication, presentations that are accepted by the scientific community that actually go in as, we'll call it ammunition or support in court that judges decide uh, based on, you know, what does the scientific community uh, know, what does it believe, what does it value, what does it declare legitimate and accepted. We have even publications that I produced with colleagues of mine back in 05 are still being cited today, 13 years later, in the scientific literature, believe it or not. Okay. And, and then, actually, um, important contribution by the National Academies, for example, this document, which was the, the assessment of the science used in the, by the FBI in the anthrax mailing cases, which is out there, which gives you some sense of what a elite body of scientists um, looked at, what they understood, what they reported on, and sort of where we were then to where we are today. And actually, one of my uh, colleagues that I worked with in those days, I was the instigator for this. It was actually uh, Dr. Hassel from now at the Department of Defense, who was the head of the FBI laboratory at the time, and one of his colleagues were the ones that championed this with uh, the National Academies. So now, let me move on to another dimension of sort of then to now. Um, I mentioned earlier that we knew that we would have to leverage international part or uh, national partnerships. CDC and the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy were among the first. Um, so Centers of Disease Control uh, was an important one and still is to this day. Um, I'm told that by my, by my FBI colleagues. Uh, USAMRID, uh, Colonel Dave Franz, who many of you know. And uh, I think he was a uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Jerry Parker was the XO in those days, became my first uh, DOD partners, were excellent uh, supporters and advocates for us. The DOE National Labs, I mentioned a couple of them earlier. In addition, uh, Pacific Northwest National Labs, Sandia National Lab, and Savannah River. And Savannah River is primarily on the nuclear side. And then um, <clears throat> and I mentioned the other ones too. They're still active members. We did have a community group uh, of academics National Lab and government, which is no longer exists, but was very important in the early days of standing up the capability. Scott mentioned the Laboratory Response Network. That today is a very powerful, very strong element of the forensic investigative and public health partnership 
that has to be the bulwark for our national program. And I've been told by my FBI colleagues that they work with the LRN every day, every day, usually from the field office level. The National First Responder Community, we reached out to them right away. I could, if we had time, I could tell you some very humorous anecdotes about getting that started. I won't, we don't have time for that. But that, I'm told, is actually very robust at a multi-level, federal, state, local, is tested, is exercised. Um, it's also supported by the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, the Weapons of Mass Destruction Coordinators in the field, and the Hazardous Materials Response Teams in the field offices. And unlike then, in 1996, we're operating on the basis of the WMD statutes. We have numerous policies, um, strategies, and policies to support this from HSPD 10 onward to this day, including the, <coughs> the most recent uh, em uh, emanation from the, the White House, the EOP. One thing that we do need to continue to support and, and advance is uh, use of existing assets. Um, the intelligence community, I'm very familiar with what goes on there, what has gone on in recent years. I was loaned from the university to uh, the Department of Defense to help develop an advanced capability at the front end of what DOD cares about. The general purpose forces need a, a, a technical capability for forensics in this area. They don't have it yet, although it was uh, dictated by a then Deputy Secretary Ash Carter. You know, this is what we need to do. Uh, somebody needs to do something. Well, we got as far as a a chemical and biological CONOP, and it never went any farther, much farther than that. The Department of Agriculture, I'm not quite sure where they stand, but they're an important component. We need to take a look at that. And also, with a DOD perspective, um, the uh, not only we need to take a look at from the end-to-end -end capabilities that DOD has, but also standardizing and optimizing what the civil support teams provide from the National Guard. We have an array of international partnerships that have been created since we started in 96. The Five Eye Partners, uh, you're familiar with those, Canada, US, UK, New Zealand, Australia, uh, the, the CTTSO, Counterterrorism Technical Support Office at DOD, or provide support for international workshops that are all government to government and national lab involvement. US State Department has programs where the FBI gets involved. A number of trusted nation-to-nation uh, -nation activities, NATO, and so on. And even today, the uh, United Nations Office of Disarmament Affairs has reached to the FBI, the U.S. Department of State, and other international partners, mainly in Europe, to upgrade the technical analysis capabilities and develop accredited gold standard laboratories with confirmatory labs. And then lastly, I want to address Senator Daschle's comments on attribution. It's also one of my burning uh, campaigns and crusades and challenges even in the waning uh, years of my career. Um, the science will never quite get you all the way to where you need to be, and that's just always going to be that way. You know that from your, from your legal practice. You can get da far down the road, you can eliminate potential sources and include hopefully a limited number of potential sources of a, a weapon, a bit of evidence or something like that, some probative evidence. I think we can significantly advance our capabilities, but one thing that's not in anybody's report, with all due respect, including your own, is sufficient research support, money. The, 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 the pittance that, that the Department of Homeland Security provides, bless their hearts, is not sufficient for an extended campaign of very aggressive support to push science to its ultimate limits for this purpose. So, and the FBI doesn't have much money of its own. Also, the fusion of different sources of information. It's not just science alone that supports attribution. We know that from, from the legal. 
We understand the legal system very well, our criminal jurisprudence process, investigation to prosecution decision. We don't really have that kind of robust framework on the policy side. I've said this before, I'll say it again, until the day I die, we need a robust framework with the supporting elements, integration, and also optimize the reporting of the food chain to the White House and the National Security Council, whoever the decision-making crucible is, to ensure that it is as robust and defensible as possible. And there is some activity going on now in the ODNI, Office of the Director of National Intelligence. We'll see where that goes. The jury's still out. They've just gotten started for the revisit. And actually, a colleague of mine, Seth Karras, that many of you know, has made a proposal to DOD through DITRA, where I have support to help them out on some things, is looking at a commander's attribution framework, decision attribution framework, coming at it from the DOD combatant command perspective. That's it. Thank you. Thanks. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Okay. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me here to give you the laboratory perspective. And as Senator Daschle mentioned earlier, you remember how you got involved in Anthrax 2001. And for me, it was the Saturday, October the 6th, after the index case was first identified of inhalational anthrax. At that time, I was actually a professor at the local university. Is your mic on? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Get a little closer. Turn it up. Okay, now. I was a professor at the local university, and the lab director at the local public health laboratory in Tampa called me at 5 o'clock in the morning that day to say, we need help. We're anticipating an increase in samples to test. We don't have enough staff. So I got to the lab and got a crash course in how to do the whole processing of these samples. And 12 hours later, we processed about 50 of those samples that day. And that went on for about a month, two months. In most public health labs, certainly in Florida, we did about 1,500 samples, all negative, thank goodness. Up in New York, I contacted them before this meeting. They had done about 1,000 in a month or so. And they had actually had positives. So that changes the whole system a lot. So that was my introduction. And I'll go through what we kind of gathered from those early days. First of all, the sample volume for a public health lab, 30 to 40 a day for weeks, is overwhelming. That can be difficult to maintain and takes a while to get used to. Like I said, New York had the same issue. Other states probably had less. But certainly some states had a lot of samples to deal with. We had limited staff to do this. You're not just processing samples. You've got to deal with the telephone. People are calling in. You've got to report out the results. So you've got to shift staff around in order to make it all work. We saw an inconsistency in samples submitted back then. We had samples coming in paper bags. We had car parts being delivered, luggage. We even had a mailbox sent to the lab. And if any of these contained spores, then we would have had contamination from the source through transport up to the lab. And it would have been a significant mess. We didn't have standardized protocols back then. In fact, a lot of public health labs, the Tampa one for sure, we were working only with culture. We'd culture the samples, leave them overnight, 
came back the next day to see what had grown up on, on the plates. Uh, there were a few states like New York trying to bring on PCR and rapid testing. Uh, safety was not great back then. Uh, most public health labs, uh, Tampa one for sure, we did not have biosafety level capability and containment. Um, so we're working under the biosafety cabinet and making use of PPE, our protective equipment. And then reporting out. We didn't have electronic reporting back then. Everything was faxed or called out to, to the submitter. And uh, that takes time and, and, and people. And, and our communications were not great. Uh, we got samples being delivered to the lab. We had no idea they were arriving. They just turned up at the door. Uh, I remember we had one cell phone and one pager back then, and that was it. So uh, communication is not great back then. Um, when I asked some of my colleagues around the nation before this meeting what they thought about 2001 and what they understood about it, there was an overwhelming sense of isolation for the public health labs. We were dealing with this on our own sort of thing. Uh, and that's not to say we didn't know there were other people out there doing things. It's just things seemed to be isolated. The network was not really in place. Uh, we had minimal training of our responders at that time in the hospital labs. There'd be little interaction. Um, and so, you know, even though in Florida there had been some training at the hospital lab down in Boca so that very smart physician, did diagnose the possibility of anthrax very quickly. Uh, that really hit, was, was in an isolated case. And the LRN, as, as was mentioned by my colleague here, was just getting going basically in, in 2001. So that's how we saw it back then, and what have we done to try to or improve, and how have we improved? Well, the state public health labs, as the reference labs in, in the LRN, We've gone major steps, I think, to improve and make sure things are better at this moment. The LRN did push out standardized protocols to the reference labs. We all now have reference, uh, rapid testing in place. It's molecular testing. It doesn't rely on that slow culture testing. The funding we received allowed our labs to buy equipment and to maintain that equipment. You can't just buy equipment and let it sit. You have to maintain it, you have to run it, you have to operate it. Um, a lot of public health labs receive funding in order to build or renovate biosafety level three labs in, in the public health labs, and we did that in Tampa. We, we have a very very nice public uh, BSL-3 lab there now. Um, public health labs got dedicated biothreat uh, or biodefense coordinators in their labs now, so they all, they have staff who, whose job it is to test these powder samples. And, and that's all they really do. Uh, and, and they're ready and waiting, and they're on 24-7 call. Uh, we implemented electronic reporting back to CDC. So that has been put in place. Every time we get a result, it goes back to CDC uh, and is, is, is there in, in uh, real time. And we certainly improved our training. Uh, we reached out to the hospital labs and, and gave them uh, training on how to recognize and refer uh, potential biothreat agents that they might see in clinical specimens. And we reached out to the responders on how to do sample threat assessment in the field and how to collect those samples and how to deliver them to the labs and how to tell us ahead of time samples are on their way. And that's made a significant dif difference. We don't get paper bags with samples anymore. We don't get mailboxes anymore. Uh, in, in Florida, we get samples in a one-gallon paint can, and that's how they're delivered. And we train search staff in the, in the laboratory. We have staff ready to go, demobilized, so they can help out if, if we ever have an increase in, in samples again. 
We've definitely improved communications. We've reached out. Uh, we have uh, we've done a lot of relationship building and networking, uh, and that's done with training. It's done through exercises, done with meetings. Uh, we reach out to each other. That fear of isolation has gone away. Uh, we're not isolated. We're now flexible. Uh, I can give you some examples of where this is all shown to, to be good. Uh, they're not bio, bioterrorism uh, um, events. They're actually nat national outbreaks, but nature's a very good bioterrorist. Uh, we certainly don't know when nature's going to put something on us. So 2009, we had H1N1 come around. Uh, the labs were way more prepared than they would have been uh, back in 2001. We had a, a big increase in samples, but we moved search staff into place. Uh, we had electronic reporting, and the public health labs helped each other out. In 2016, uh, certainly in Florida, uh, we saw Zika hit hit the state. Uh, we were doing about 200 uh, tests a week in Tampa. That's a lot more than we would normally be doing. Uh, again, search staff were deployed. We moved everybody around. It actually got to the point where it was too much, and we reached out to CDC, and they helped us. And uh, again, the fear of not being isolated had gone away. Uh, and other examples, Ebola, the public health labs were there, ready uh, to test samples. Uh, when, when MERS coronavirus hit, the, the two cases in the United States, one in Florida, one in Indianapolis, they were tested very quickly, and, and all the contacts were tested very quickly. Uh, and I'll give you a story from, from Minnesota, which actually is a, an anthrax story. Uh, I think this was about 2010, 2011. They actually had a case of inhalational anthrax drive through the state. It was picked up by the uh, clinical labs very quickly, referred to the public health labs, and they were on top of it and got all the partners involved very quickly to show it was not a bioterrorism event, it was a natural case. So the response, I think, is working a lot better now. Um, we do usually have limited staff. Staff are usually our limiting step when we have an outbreak. Uh, but we have the equipment usually in place. We, have, we are prepared uh, for, for what may, might be around the corner. Uh, as I think was mentioned earlier, the powder samples have not gone away. Just last week, Tampa tested four powder samples that came through. The, the, the process is seamless. Uh, everyone calls up, uh, the samples are delivered, testing is completed in about four to six hours, reported out, and, uh, and, and, and it's all very much better in place. Uh, so we are, I think, in a better place. We, we, we've had significant funding over the last few uh, since 2001, it has sort of gone down to sustainment. Um, it supports about 80% of the lab preparedness activities across the nation. Uh, but we can respond to those outbreaks, uh, not just the powders. Um, we do have competent staff. They're very well trained. They know what they're doing. Um, they're, we have well-maintained equipment in the labs. And we certainly have better uh, communications and data reporting uh, out to, to partners like CDC. Um, we're now uh, engagement and partnerships with, with the FBI, law enforcement, the responders, the civil support teams, clinical labs, and definitely our other public health labs and CDC. So I think uh, I'll finish there and, and say I think we are in a much better place than we were 17 years ago. Thank you. I'll go to my colleagues first. Senator Dash, you care to ask, make some questions? I've got a couple of wait till the end. Thank you. I'll, I'll be respectful of our time. I know we have a limited amount of time. Uh, Dr. Lillibridge, first of all, just thank you for your service and for the commitment that you've made to these many, many challenges we face uh, uh, 
continue to face, but uh, your commitment and leadership is is deeply appreciated. Could you just uh, elaborate a little bit more on the protocol that exists today with regard to a situation similar to what we experienced in 2001? Could you maybe elaborate as to just what would be the protocol for a situation uh, were it to occur again? All right, it's been a long time since I've been in government, so I can, I can tell you the steps conceptually you have to go through. Uh -huh. uh, how they're wired right now with between agencies, that's probably more topical than, than my experience, uh, immediate experience. The, the first thing is really what is it, uh, you know, when somebody has a, 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 a threat of a disease and then presents as a patient or a sample, is to identify what it is. That creates a cascade largely based on uh, clinical observation and supported by laboratory uh, technology. Um, the tools in the toolkit now allow us to do look at uh, rapid diagnostics based on DNA, RNA, to look at other attributes, uh, to use sophisticated technology to quickly um, look at strain and isolate those. Once that happens, uh, it goes into a, a system where you have um, alerting into a state or a federal uh, kind of cascade to respond, uh, depending on, on the circumstances, whether it's deliberate or accidental, or you don't know. Uh, uh, a lot of these, as, as Dr. Merch and, uh, mentioned, we don't know at first, and that's a really uncomfortable position to be in. Uh, the way response organizations, uh, including CDC, FEMA, DHS, and others are, is that at that level, things begin to move forward uh, if, if it's a significant national threat. Stockpile, uh, emergency operations centers are activated. Uh, key staff are identified that are subject matter experts. Uh, state health, health departments and laboratories are brought online to, to update uh, uh, either protocols or get situational awareness and then briefings go up the political uh, and functional ladders of uh, department agencies and departments. A anybody else who wants to elaborate should, should do so, but... Um, Dr. Murchie, I see you're going to respond to this, but since, since you're going to be talking, could you just elaborate in addition to answering or sure. further elaborating on Dr. Lillibridge's remarks? You mentioned the need for, uh, the, 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 the need for money is really one of your vital concerns as you look at research and the and uh, and the way we could uh, address these challenges going forward could you drill down a little bit more with regard to what we would do with that money what would be your priorities sure. but but uh, I'd love to get your comments first on the let me do uh, sort of attach myself to Dr. Lillibridge's comments really quickly is I do know from from recent conversation with my FBI colleagues that uh, ones that are currently on active duty and working the problem set, is that there actually is, unlike in the past, a very rigorous protocol for an assessment of a potential event. And this is used uh, with a amalgam of the various components at FBI headquarters and other agencies. And there's a very, uh, very rigorous stepwise process they go through to say yay or nay, is it a concern or not. And, that, and that's done in a, in a network fashion within and between agencies. So that didn't exist in the past. Um, with respect to the money, um, and I'm not a big believer in just throwing money at a problem. I've never, I wasn't, grow, I didn't grow up that way. Uh, 
but I, and, and never really lived that way in the Bureau, being held accountable for every dollar we ever, ever got, even for new programs. However, I think that um, there have been a number of activities, including international meetings, uh, one that comes to mind. I actually helped uh, get going with the National Academies. was held in Zagreb. Croatia in, in the fall of 2013, which resulted in a, a National Academy report that laid out what a, an international roadmap for, for research and development should look like. I do know, because I'm, I'm called back in to help out, help the federal government and international partners think through their, their priorities for research and development they have. They have those in mind. They have very specific things they're, they're looking to do. And they include um, such things, as I mentioned, having better exploitation of biotoxins. Uh, they present very difficult problem sets. Um, they can identify it often, but they can't go very far in the attribution, source attribution. Another one is complex samples. Uh, we saw in the, in the anthrax mailing cases that very few of those were pristine samples. They're environmental samples that are cluttered with other microbes, with other genomes, with other background. How do you sort that out? For example, it's one thing if you have a lot of something you're interested in against a background of minimal components where you think you're, that's the one you're looking for versus a single copy of a genome in a sea of noise. And what is the significance of that? And that's what you're str we struggle with in these kinds of cases. So it, in some cases, the samples may be irrelevant. What happens, for example, if that threat agent is in background anyway? Will it be there? So how do you make sense of that? So being able to look at cluttered samples, environmental samples, metagenomics, which is the very um, difficult, complex genomic uh, samples, as well as um, better, perhaps, uh, integration of biosurveillance and forensic data would be another one, perhaps. I'm um, a dreamer, at, and sometimes I'd like to see what could machine learning or AI do for us that we haven't explored yet. Uh, there's a, a recent report that came out. I haven't had a chance to read, read it, but someone is looking at uh, how one might attribute um, uh, samples to a laboratory um, using AI and machine learning. It just came out. I haven't had a chance to read it, but I'll happy to share it with, with Dr. George, and you can then have a look at it and see what people are beginning to explore. So those are some of the examples, and I think there are probably some basic things that are, that are we'll call it not, you know, um, very difficult uh, from a off the shelf that we haven't got a chance to look at. The other thing is the unknown unknown. One last shot at this since you gave it to me is the unknown unknown so that we can reduce surprise. Um, synthetic biology and what that generated of threats, how do we tackle that from a forensic perspective? Very helpful. Thank you. One comment on, on funding on there. The way we engage industry really has been through BARDA uh, in the, the public health and medical realm. It is really critically important that that have substantial funding and longer-term funding if you're going to bend industry towards strategic goals. Well said. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Tom. Thanks uh, to the three of you. Excellent panel. Uh, Dr. Littlebridge, you mentioned uh, in your remarks that uh, really we ought to be trying to involve uh, private, private enterprise, private sector more in the biodefense um, of our country. What, just spell that out a little more detail. It may be something we want to focus on in the months ahead. The, um, if you look at the way uh, technology is organized in the United States, uh, the, 
the biopharma, the biotechnology, the innovation is, is largely in the private sector. Right. We need to harness that for, for our, our goals of biopreparedness. Um, the way we do that is um, uh, longer-term programs, financial. Uh, we have uh, interlocking directorates where we have uh, some shared equities between industry and the public. Uh, we, we call those public-private partnerships. Uh, I think in, in this country, the way we do business, those are extremely important. Um, my concern in the past is uh, if we build sort of parallel capacities in lots of agencies, we won't have the scale and depth to approach and bend industry into cooperating with us. So are you thinking uh, mostly of uh, creating uh, greater incentives uh, to the private sector for countermeasures, or is it beyond that? I mean, uh, you know, I, I think the... Do we have anything to learn from them I'm on uh, infrastructure, re the reform or improvement of our biodefense infrastructure? You know, I think we do. And, and what I used to think uh, naively 20 years ago was that more funding to buy more things from industry. Now I'm thinking of greater funding to bring industry into part of the preparedness effort, uh, much like when we designed um, bombers in World War II. We had the Army Air Corps work with Boeing and uh, Douglas and others to, to refine an airplane that could get funded and could work effectively. Uh, we're not engaging up front um, uh, strategically as much as we should. Okay. I'd like to continue that discussion with you. I, I do want to say that one thing that came out from your testimony that was interesting to me is that um, as much as we look back at the response to the anthrax attacks of 1001 uh, and say, uh, wow, could have been, uh, we should have done a lot better. Um, what's interesting is that there actually was some infrastructure already in place, uh, that you had begun something at CDC, you've been the FBI, in some sense your labs were ready to respond uh, uh, to the attack. So. I, I don't. We only have uh, less than ten minutes. But uh, what motivated those early actions? Uh, you mentioned that President Clinton read a book and called and asked what you were doing about it. But it must have been more than that. You know, if you if you go back at that time, um, there was a, a group of luminaries, and, and I mentioned these champions. Um, probably yeah. D. A. Henderson at, at the head of the list, but certainly others. There were several people in Congress, uh, including yourselves. Who, who had an interest in this area, uh, the president, the public, and the entertainment industry had, had brought this to great awareness of the public. We had a Being lot through, of, um, through uh, movies, movies and books TV and, shows, and yeah. uh, Hot Zone, Cobra, right. and so forth, uh, there was a lot of awareness at the time. And, um, you know, we benefited at that time to begin what was a nascent program with, by today's standards, relatively low amounts of money and, and resources, uh, to begin the process of uh, uh, beginning to implement a laboratory response network. Uh, Randy and his group and our group at CDC at the time had uh, developed a way to work together uh, at the local level and regional level. We hadn't done that at the national level yet, necessarily, but um, I think those were all the implementation factors right. at that time. Okay. We so had something to, to build on from the uh, thanks. Yeah. Great. 
Thanks, Randy. Um, I want to follow up on the. Um, I don't know. This this is about sort of today's events, but the um, the National Bioforensic Analysis Center. So my understanding is there was this memorandum of agreement. I think uh, Senator Daschle mentioned it this morning uh, between HSS and FBI. FBI is now managing it, or DHS and FBI. FBI is now managing it. Um, do you have a sense of how that's going? Um, sort of, you know whether that transition has gone smoothly or not, and then do you have any recommendations for maybe how to um, sort of help advance the, the mission going forward? We talked, uh, I think Senator Daschle mentioned maybe specific authorization, appropriations uh, legislatively, yeah. et cetera. So my, my, I'm sort of the, the, the innocent bystander sitting up in the stands on this one, but I do, do have had a number of conversations with news flash updates from my FBI colleagues. So I, I knew at one time there was a discussion that the FBI was going to take over management of all of it, all of NBAC. And I, apparently that's been reduced to back to the part that, they mat that matters most to them, and that's NBFAC. And, and watching the evolution of NBFAC over the years, which I've been pretty close to, and I do speak with Jim Burns, for example, on a regular basis. I see him at conferences and so on. I think it's gone very well, to be honest with you. Um, I've been very encouraged. Uh, not simply by the uh, simply the evolution of the technical capability, but the coordination, and also the understanding that um, you know the FBI is the primary customer. It is the director of activity. There are other federal agencies that use it, but very sparingly because of need. Um, in my view, and this is also coming from Doug Anders, uh, who I did email with before over the weekend, is that we do think that there's a couple of. Uh, enterprises that could take better advantage of it. And that would also infuse resources. One is the intelligence community, and two is the Department of Defense. Um, the Department of Defense needs a global for projected capability. Um, it does have some of that. It doesn't have all of it. But it also would need a confirmatory laboratory. Why not use NBFAC? It is the so-called gold standard national lab. And I think that um, I do know um, with very good certitude that, uh, that what DIC has been using it for, I think there's more to be done there. And we'll just leave it at that for the time being. Um, I think that also, um, largely because of, of um, funding resources, as I understand it, um, I think there's probably value to get back to a, more of a research support network that was, there was one created in the early days with companies and universities that shrunk to some of the national labs that support NBFAC, and they can do some work there for R&D and transition, but not as much, probably revisiting that, for example. And I really think there's a natural trajectory uh, that could be envisioned, provided other federal assets, federal departments and agencies, enterprises would take more advantage than we've been better shaped than we are. My colleagues, uh, members have a question? I have one Troy. quick question for uh, Dr. Lillibridge. Uh, thank you for uh, all of you for your presentations. Um, Dr. Lillibridge, you mentioned uh, the potential of blockchain to help in preparation for bioterror attacks. I'm a big fan of blockchain. I've written about its uh, potential, but I'd love to hear a little more elaboration of uh, how it could work in this area. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, thanks for your work and interest. The um, As I think about the future, the next big response that I'm in or get involved with or you get involved with, this is going to be information intensive. We heard from Randy and others about lab sequencing data, surveillance data, information, logistics, moving, stockpile, and so forth. And we have got what we have is a huge informatics uh, ac 
connectivity. It's large scale. It's beyond what we could do on paper back in 2000, you know, 2001. Uh, it requires um, a, a major informatics backbone. And I mentioned uh, Amazon, IBM, and Microsoft. We've worked with all three. They all have their pluses and minuses. But as you begin moving logistics, people, and responding to populations, there's a lot of things in motions. And we have to have signatures, attribution, and a situational awareness of all these pieces. A blockchain is a tool that, that would be used to supplement how we manage an information-intensive emergency. Uh, we're using it in uh, biodefense on our ag biodefense tracking of livestock. We use it uh, to manage lab samples. And uh, we're going to use it to uh, get signatures on sequencing. Anything else? Uh, Dr. Cannons, I uh, don't mean to put you on the spot to speak for the entire public health community, but uh, <laughs> indulge me, if you will. Part of it, it probably has to do with my perspective, uh, privilege to serve both in Washington in a couple capacities, but as governor. But I don't think we'll ever be as strong as a country if we think we can get everything done in Washington. It is a federal system. So I'm going to ask you a question. From your perspective in Florida, maybe you can speak just for yourself, in terms of setting protocols among the 50 states consistent with what maybe the federal government would accept as a norm so we don't have this duplication of labs, FBI is doing something, you're doing something, CDC is doing something. Everybody's got to be testing the same thing. So in terms of standardizing protocols, communicating information, and even supporting with funding, how do you view uh, the situation today? Forget about 9-11. I mean, that time period in 9-11, everybody says everything's much better. I'm just trying to figure out how much better, because from my perspective, 9-11 couldn't have been much worse, because you had multiple pieces of infrastructure, but even then they had a tough time with protocols and communication. So, But particularly from the federal down to the state level, information, protocol, and even, uh, even funding. Would you care to comment in those three areas? I told you I'd put you on a spot if you <laughs> yeah, thank Maybe you. just from a Florida perspective, <laughs> then. You don't have to speak for the whole industry. Um, I think I, it, it is a tough question, I think, to, to answer. Um, I, I mentioned uh, some of our responses to, to major outbreaks that we've had, and, and that was, um, I believe, better than it would have been prior to 2001 uh, because of the infrastructure that was put into place. Um, so that's one example that we have moved on. Um, we do, and I and I and I hear you know about doing whole genome sequencing, um, and, and advancing the technology that way. One of the things that we have the ability to look for things we're trying to detect. We don't have the ability to look for the unknowns, and that's what's been mentioned. Um, and I think that's where we 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 are lacking now. The public health labs we don't have the resources usually to develop our own methods. We we're going to get them the standardized methods from CDC. And, and CDC is also working with the Department of Defense. They can push out methods very quickly. Um, but we do need to be proactive and not reactive with some of these methods. And, and I, I, from my perspective, whether it's Florida or another state, I think we do rely heavily on what 
we get given to test our our protocols, our methodology. So we're we're going to we're going to develop that. We're going to work with what we're given very quickly, but we are relying on on that information to come down to us and those protocols. But I think the examples we've 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 seen how we've responded is so much better. But yes, we've got to move to the next level, and I don't know what that takes for for the public health lab, other than very competent staff, um, equipment. Um, and the ability to respond. I appreciate it. My colleagues care to yes, yeah. You know, that's, you know, sometimes a good answer, no. Uh, and my, my, my colleagues in government will probably tell you, sometimes the worst question when they say any more questions is the last one. <laughs> and they wish it wouldn't have said any more questions. But any, any additional response, any thoughts there? I, mean, I just think it's so critical in this whole area for there to be so much, the collaboration, the communication between the federal and the state. Thank good we had individuals back at 9-11 that responded. I mean, you showed up at 2 o'clock in the morning. To talk. I mean, we, I understand that, but yeah. it's got to be an ongoing, mm -hmm. it almost has to be institutionalized as to how the feds deal with the state public health community. And I'm not sure it is. Yeah. That's what the really question I was asking. You know, I had two observations that help deal with federal, state, and, and disparate third parties on there. And one was the laboratory is a common language for us, and that made it easy to go forward with the laboratory response network. You heard Randy talk about the FBI working with the state and working with foreign entities. It's an easy way to, to collaborate. I'm looking for wins like that in biodefense. And uh, information technology was another one. Uh, common surveillance is another language. So I, I'm thinking these are all extremely important, and I, I certainly agree with my colleagues. Well, we, on behalf of the panel, I want to thank you for your testimony. It's reassuring to know that we made some progress since that, uh, that anthrax, uh, anthrax crisis, and frankly, probably one of the reasons we have is so many of you were involved back then. You still have your eye on the, eye on the prize, eye on the target, so we thank all of you. For uh, folks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a little break now. I'm going to let you get a little lunch. And then we have a video prepared for you to, where you're consuming lunch, a little intellectual food for thought. And then we're going to be back uh, here at about 20 to 1. We've got uh, a very special speaker at uh, 20 to 1. We're running a few minutes late. I'm accountable. We'll try to get you back on schedule. And to our panel, thank you again very much. Thank you. You know, um, so where the heck are you now these days? You're in Texas, right? I'm Texas A&M. Right? Oh, okay.
Uh, why don't we, uh, if we begin, people will come. If we build it, they will come. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Fink, can I uh, ask you to come up to the uh, table in front? Uh, I hope everybody uh, enjoyed the lunch and entertainment. <laughs> uh, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Uh, Sherry Fink with us uh, as a keynote uh, speaker today. Uh, Dr. Fink is a correspondent with the New York Times and um, has written some um, really important books, I believe, one of which is Five Days at Memorial Life and Death in a Storm-Ravaged Hospital. After Hurricane Katrina, uh, Senator Susan Collins and I, who were, we always, I always forget whether I was chairman and she was ranking member or she was chairman and I was ranking because we, we, we were, we were, we were pretty close <laughs> and all that changed <clears throat> was the title. But oh, the golden bygone days. <laughs> but um, uh, we did an investigation of um, the federal government response to Hurricane Katrina, which uh, obviously was much less than it should have been. And one of the striking things to me, and I've been thinking about it during the, my, our work on this Biodefense Commission, was the uh, just the, uh, uh, the the inability of the public health system to respond to this crisis. And uh, it it does have direct connection to the demands on our health public health. Uh, system should there be, God forbid, a bioterrorist attack or a uh, infectious disease uh, pandemic. So that your work uh, on this uh, is of real relevance to us. We're very grateful you're here and we look forward to hearing from you now. Yeah, press the button and when the green light goes on, you're on. Green, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> um, I see those links as well. Um, so Memorial Medical Center was a vibrant community hospital in New Orleans leading up to 2005. And then it was surrounded by floodwaters after the levees failed in New Orleans, drowning one of America's most beloved cities. The heat rose. Like in many hospitals, the backup generator system could not run the air conditioning, even you know when, it, when the backup generators were functioning. And that is a common problem I've since discovered, and there are no regulations requiring that to be addressed. Um, the hospital also was not protected against flooding, like in many American hospitals in flood zones. Uh, again, regulations don't require them to be. So the leaders of this hospital knew that within hours, all power would likely fail as the waters rose. Rescue helicopters began arriving at Memorial, but they could take one or two patients at a time. There were around 250 patients and 2,000 people in this hospital complex, doctors, nurses, staff, and family members. So I ask you just for a moment to cast your mind into that scenario. Of course, none of us can imagine it without being there, but, but trying to is a useful exercise. If you were in some um, position of leadership, how would you um, make a decision like 
which patients would get on those helicopters first. Um, so would you think about, could it be the sickest patients because they rely on machines uh, like ventilators per, to breathe for them? Could it be the, the healthiest patients because you could move them quickly and you might have a better chance of saving people who could survive? Th their conditions could worsen if they waited for a long time. There were babies in the neonatal intensive care unit. They were fragile, but if they made it, they would have a whole life ahead of them. So would you want to factor in age into this sort of ethically weighted decision? Or what about older people who might have poor prognoses, but who had so much wisdom, who had taken care of others throughout their lives? So what would society be like without our elders? And then there were the medical professionals themselves and the health professionals. They were frightened, they were tired. Some of them had chronic conditions, were older. And of course their work would be so needed after the disaster in terms of that long recovery phase that we now know from repeated disasters is the, really the most important one. So should some of them be put on those early helicopters and gotten out? Katrina was extreme. But it wasn't unique, and similar triage scenarios, as you pointed out, arise whenever medical infrastructure crumbles or when a surge of patients could cause the needs to outmatch the resources. So some other examples, just to step back from Katrina for a moment. Um, we've anticipated this problem in future disasters, including infectious scenarios. There's been some federal funding for planning around which patients would and would not get access to hospitals in case of a large pandemic, such as the 1918 flu we heard talked about at lunchtime. Um, you know, there wouldn't be enough ventilators or critical care beds to go around. That's actually rationing, the, the R word that nobody likes to use. Um, just the other week, a meeting was held at the Institute of Medicine, uh, sorry, na now called National Academy of Medicine, looking at rationing that is already occurring around the shortages of prescription medications that is you know, plaguing the US. And that would be particularly worrisome if a biological agent caused a large surge of patients. So another example that we had recently was the Ebola epidemic that was um, really the one that was out of control in 2014 and 2015. And I spent about three months in West Africa reporting on that and observed some of the moral distress that healthcare professionals face when they had to make some decisions. I think we often think about, well, if we don't have the right countermeasures, at least we're gonna keep everybody comfortable. And what we forget is that keeping people comfortable requires a lot of resources too. And during the Ebola outbreak, that was pretty much without an effective vaccine at that time, without effective treatments, um, the health providers that we all saw the pictures of in their their suits going into these Ebola treatment units, really all they could provide, the resources they were providing was comfort. And they had to ration that because they could only stay in those suits for so long. And there was not a lot of good technology um, and there still isn't in this Ebola outbreak that we're seeing now to allow care providers to be in more comfortable yet protective outfits uh, or, or uh, uniforms. So these are some of the examples of why Katrina, when it forced this kind of these ethically tinged and value tinged decision making processes, um, these things come up over and over again in different scenarios. Um, even when 
doctors from this country went to um, to work in the Ebola outbreak in 2014 and 2015. One of the things, uh, another example was that there were special treatment units set up in case these caregivers who were coming across the world and risking their lives might get sick. And they had a higher level of care. There were some point of care diagnostics and uh, they had rudimentary um, uh, air conditioning systems that were not available in most of the Ebola treatment units. And then it quickly became a question of, well, who should get access to this? Should it be only the foreign workers? Well, at least the Americans, for example, could be helicoptered and, and flown out. They had that chance and they did if they got sick. What about the local caregivers? Should Could you really set up an Ebola treatment unit for uh, just for foreigners on Liberian soil and not offer it to Liberian healthcare workers who got sick? So you can see just so many examples of where these kinds of questions of, of triage and rationing come up. So going back to the Hurricane Katrina example, when the helicopters started to arrive. It was, uh, it's also a question of who makes the decision, who gets to choose, who gets the access to those critical resources. So in this case, because they, um, the healthcare providers hadn't thought about this in advance, they hadn't practiced for it. So they just made an ad hoc decision and they made their best possible choices. It was mostly doctors, sort of take charge individuals who, who got together and, and came up with a triage protocol. And so they got some of the sickest patients out first, um, intensive care unit patients, those of you who were rooting for the babies, they chose to get them out first. But they also chose at that moment a group of patients who would go last. Uh, they taped pieces of paper with numbers to patient gowns. Um, ones were the relatively healthy, twos were the moderately sick, and the threes were the terribly ill or patients with so-called do not resuscitate orders. And the threes would go last. And I asked some of the care providers why they chose this. And they said, well, I figured somebody who had a do not resuscitate order didn't want extraordinary measures used to sustain their lives. And so I decided they wouldn't want to be saved at the expense of others. Another one said, well, I figured somebody with a do not resuscitate order had probably, um, you know, not much life left and therefore the quote, the least to lose compared with other people. But of course, um, perhaps there was a wedding that person wanted to get to, or perhaps there were other reasons why um, the value of their life, um, you know, had a, an important weight to their families. And of course, um, and for what it's worth. And again, the physicians made their best possible choices. But uh, again, the former Institute of Medicine did convene an expert panel around this question and said, it's hard enough to get people to um, sign end of life uh, preferences and do not resuscitate orders to begin with. So therefore, using them as do not rescue um, sort of triage protocols isn't a wise thing to do going forward. What happened was that after this initial group of patients got out, in fact, the power did fail. Um, gunshots went off outside the hospitals. Hospital rumors circulated of violence and danger. Helicopters came less frequently and the rescue efforts lagged. Pets were not allowed to accompany their owners and doctors began to euthanize them. Um, pets, by the way, were in the hospital as part of getting the staff to feel that they could
Yes. Okay. Ooh, that one's strong. Um, so, in in fact, um, a day, a whole day passed, and the desperately sick patients grew even sicker. Some of them began to die, and it was thought that others might not make it. So, what should be done about them when it was time for everyone else to leave? A question arose: What about putting the patients out of their misery? So this actually began to be discussed in this hospital, in this modern American hospital in 2005. Ultimately, it was found that around 20 patients were injected with morphine and a powerful sedative and died. And they were not only patients who were teetering on the edge of life. One was a 61-year-old doting grandfather who was partially paralyzed. He weighed nearly 400 pounds. Elevators no longer worked, and he was on the seventh floor, and staff who I interviewed said they felt that he might be just too heavy for them to carry to the helipad and to rescue at that point. And I think this is just, um, I mean, for that level of desperation to inflict people who work in a hospital that quickly, you know, after a day without power is very alarming. And I think it's, you know, we sometimes underestimate just when we are such a technologically advanced society, when that is withdrawn from us, um, how vulnerable and desperate people can become. So sometimes our greatest strength can become our weakness in, in situations like this. That particular man, Emmett Everett, had fed himself breakfast that morning and asked the staff, are we ready to rock and roll? So he'd expressed the desire to be rescued. He told his nurse, don't let them leave me behind, Cindy. Don't let them leave me behind. So um, the book that I wrote, Five Days at Memorial, is about what happens when disaster strikes and the places and systems our lives depend on fail at the moment we need them the most. I myself am a physician by training, and I've worked in disasters and conflict zones. My first book was about a war hospital under siege for three years in Bosnia um, during a genocide that Senator Lieberman and others worked so hard to try to prevent. But never outside the realm of movies had I heard of conditions getting so bad that doctors and nurses felt their only option was to hasten patients' deaths. There were others in this hospital who disagreed and refused to participate. Um, and so I, I set about trying to learn more in the hopes of that understanding this might help us in future um, disaster scenarios and emergencies like the ones that you're committed to um, trying to mitigate and prevent here. Um, one of the questions of why this happened had to do with the hospital's disaster plans. And just I, I just want to point this out as one of many factors, but it was very interesting because we talked um, about, um, uh, this came up earlier, that by 2005, actually, more than a billion dollars had been made available to the nation's roughly 5,000 hospitals to promote bioterrorism preparedness. Um, and so the hospital's bioterrorism plan in 2005 ran 101 pages. Uh, it had 11 pages devoted to hurricanes, which are a, quite a likely scenario in New Orleans. So I don't think that, I'm not recommending here that that investment in bioterrorism preparedness should not have been made. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's just the need to recognize that these investments that we make, um, some can make us more broadly protected and resilient, and others we need to think kind of about specifics for specific scenarios that may be likely in different areas. 
And um, another thing is just that one-time investments aren't enough, and I think we've heard this over and over, but it's really true. A preparedness posture requires this kind of um, exercising all the time. It's just like you wouldn't show up on game day if you hadn't practiced, and that's really what preparedness is, is all about, at least in what I've observed over the years. Um, and so... Um, in some ways, much has changed since Katrina. So the federal government, through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has instituted, as of last year, at least basic disaster planning requirements for healthcare providers of all sorts. And that was a, a, a need recognized very soon after Katrina, and it took like 12 years to make that happen. Um, but along the way, as that uh, proposed rule became a final rule, some of the more stringent preparedness requirements slowly um, were taken out as unfunded mandates, um, particularly uh, a set of requirements around generators, backup power, which we've seen even last year with Hurricane Irma, so important for, uh, for example, nursing homes to have. There was a dozen patients who died in one nursing home that just lost its air conditioning system uh, and the heat rose. So, um, you know, I think that the measure of success of um, this particular new legislation will really depend on how it's enforced, how it's interpreted, and that would be one of my sort of um, suggestions in terms of um, recommendations is really looking at that and how that can be made useful because we have had for years people dying in healthcare settings in emergencies. Um, and so challenges remain. Uh, our infrastructure is vulnerable. Uh, there's a public disengagement uh, and unpreparedness. It's very hard, I think, for humans to look at worst case scenarios without having actually facing them, um, sort of in anticipation. It seems to be a problem we all have. Um, there's also this funding perception that you can sort of shoot money at something right after something happens, and this was discussed earlier, um, without realizing the need to sustain those investments. And uh, there are more and more people in the community with medical needs. I won't get into this, but um, we're talking right at this moment about institutions, but I just had published a piece in the Times Magazine about a month ago looking at uh, Houston and Harris County after Hurricane uh, Harvey last year and just the problems with reaching people and prioritizing people who have medical needs in the context of a mass emergency. And that in some ways is an even greater challenge when people are outside of institutions and you need a whole systems of preparedness. And we've got 911 systems that are problematic and very patchy around the country. EMS systems, the same thing. Very little federal um, sort of standards and, and very little federal funding support to improve those that critical pieces of infrastructure around healthcare that will be so important in the case of a bioterrorism episode or pandemic. Um, but I've learned in every case that there are actions that can make a difference, that can help us prepare better, help our health um, providers, as well as patients in such dire scenarios, have better outcomes. And so one would be to look at uh, infrastructure and ways to solidify it, uh, whether by stronger building codes, mandatory retrofits, which are incredibly expensive and always after disaster seem to be the one piece of legislation that doesn't get through. Um, but is there a way to 
improve public support for even private institutions that may have thin profit margins but need to make some of these investments in um, being better prepared because they serve all of us. They're serving this critical role. Um, I've already spoken about preparedness to be seen as a perpetual task. Um, and also, finally, I, I would just like to say that um, there's this issue of trust. As we all know, if there should be a bioterrorism incident, if there should be a pandemic, how the public does, how many people die, will largely depend on the level of trust that they have in the people who are putting out messages about how to protect themselves. And I think that there has long been a sense amongst um, public officials, hospitals, you name it, that these institutions that really want to maintain trust, that they feel they can do that by pulling back on communications, by tightly controlling communications. And I think that sometimes that can um, um, be counterproductive because then people start to fear. They start to come up with their own theories. And um, so whatever can be done to improve trust is going to be so, so important, um, especially at this time where there's so many people who, who don't trust critical institutions. Um, so I encourage you to, of course, I'm biased as a reporter now, but to engage with the public, even on vulnerabilities, on um, these questions of how to um, sort of ration or um, make difficult choices around who gets resources so that the public will be prepared and be able to um, engage and not just freak out. Um, and then finally, I think so much more needs to be done. You know, there has been this investment in some of these crisis standards of care, rationing protocols, but what we really need investments in are ways to maintain standards, not lower them, to try to prevent these horrific, impossible choices from having to be made. I mean, that should be the real goal. Um, so I'll end there and take your questions. <clears throat> that was excellent. Thank you um, very, very much, because you portrayed the um, at least two aspects of this, which is the capacity of the system to respond in uh, he health or medical terms, and then the other dimension, which we haven't really uh, talked about hardly at all, is the uh, inevitable uh, moral judgments uh, you have to make if you have demands on the health system that go beyond the capacity of the system. So how do you ration, the R word? Um, and it's, it's very uh, thought-provoking and important for us to think about. Um, so uh, you spoke to this somewhat, but I want to just sort of ask you the direct question. Uh, and acknowledging that um, for reasons that we need not go into, Katrina was an unusually um, powerful storm and the vulnerability of the dikes and all the rest in New Orleans. But um, if, if, and of course we're seeing uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of extreme weather now. Uh, so um, in another Katrina-like uh, event or, or less extreme, are you confident that we've done some things since 2005 to um, um, prepare our public health system to help more people than the uh, Memorial Hospital was able to help? It, it's really a mixed bag. It's so, um, I, I think that 
for one thing, there's a lot more awareness of the issues, and certainly in the healthcare field, there's more awareness of the importance of these questions. Um, and certainly now with this new um, CMS rule, there's some accountability for health providers around this, but it's, it's still a bit wishy-washy, and there's just so much infrastructure vulnerability um, you know, I mean, even around when we think about when we had the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, there was a, a system set up to try to make sure we had hospitals that were prepared to handle people with very dangerous um, pathogens, uh, you know, suspected of, of being infected. But I sometimes, you know, these are sort of sit around and aren't dusted off. Um, and so to the extent that they can be... Um, that there can be more attention and more more uh, focus and incentives for using those facilities for practicing um, in between the actual disasters. That is, is really important. But no, I, I mean, I've continued to report on disasters throughout. And while there are some um, improvements, we saw, for example, in Puerto Rico, many, many people dying because, um, likely because of the vulnerabilities of the healthcare system when we lack, sure. you know, running water and, and sure. um, electricity and so on. One more uh, question. Um, we get accustomed around here to PhDs, but we don't have too many MD PhDs before us. So, so uh, and that, that's your case. So to ask you to um, go, go both to your experience that you've talked about as a correspondence, but also as a doctor, what are the different kinds of demands that uh, an infectious disease pandemic would put on our public health system than, for instance, the hurricane did in uh, New Orleans? A, a lot of things. Um, and first of all, I just want to address one thing from your previous question where you mentioned values in preparing for these infectious pandemics. I want to say specifically that there are some good resources around how to have the public involved in that very difficult conversation, and that has been done. It's been sort of, I think we are afraid of, oh, the public will react so badly to this. But in a few places where there's been an effort to have fora and get um, sort of public input, Experts have been impressed both at the sort of ability of the public to discuss these things and also that there are um, concepts that come in that you wouldn't have thought about if you hadn't asked the question. So just putting that aside, but a few things that if there were an infectious pandemic, which there could be at any time, we know the flu virus could, could <laughs> mutate and we could face this. So it's everything from... Um, you know, primarily shortages, um, critical care shortages, uh, saline solution, which is already in shortage, partly due to the hurricane last year in Puerto Rico. Um, so it, it, there will be a lot of um, focus around that and a lot of problems around that. Um, also, as countermeasures become available, of course, we do have efforts to create vaccines and whatnot, and we saw this with H1N1, a little flavor of it, that as that vaccine became available, there was a lot of tension in society about who should get it first. So that needs to be thought about. Um, and then nobody wanted it later. <laughs> um, and so again, um, public trust, those issues, very critical. Those are some that just come to mind. Very helpful. Thank you, Dr. Fink. Governor? 
Uh, thank you, Doctor. Your experience at Memorial is, is, uh, gives us an insight that very few, very few of those who have participated before the panel have been able to share with us, so we appreciate it. I just want to change the circumstances a little bit. Uh, you were concerned about the evacuation of a hospital that was going to lose its capacity to serve and to heal. So that's one complication. Let's say you were at Memorial Hospital, uh, notwithstanding the natural disaster, but there was an Ebola outbreak at the same time, and you had to deal with it with multiple uh, patients. Are there lessons learned um, with regard to the hospital's preparation for Katrina that could be applied to a, a bio event uh, that you could share with us, and particularly if you had uh, didn't have a countermeasure, medical countermeasure for it? Thanks. Well, I just had this sudden vision of um, trying to evacuate a hospital with Ebola patients in the middle of a storm, and um, it reminded me of one thing that we saw during the Ebola outbreak, which is that there are very few um, sort of transportation resources right. for people who have these types of um, scary infectious diseases, and that's that's something to look at, um, whether it's ambulances. Um, or air transport in particular has been a big issue, and it's a very limited availability, um, biohazard, you know, protected resources. Also, I remember in New York City, public health officials talking about when they had the one case of the doctor who had come back from West Africa and got right. sick in New York, and even just trying to find a company that would go and clean the apartment. Um, you know, and you can think of all the contractors that New York City has to to do cleanups, and I think it 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 came down like they could barely find one that would do that job. So, um, it's this is all why it's really really important to practice these scenarios and work through them ahead of time because you come up with things you would never anticipate until you either really practice with a very realistic scenario or um, have it happen in some way. So. In terms of what's been learned and how, um, you know, I think we actually saw that. We had a few cases in American hospitals that caused a lot of problems. For example, in Texas, several health, or two healthcare providers caught Ebola in an American hospital from a patient. So we realized that we um, don't necessarily have a lot of preparedness around how to, um, you know, protect our healthcare providers. So we have you know, great health infrastructure here, but that's that was a big lesson that we learned, um, the need to invest more in that. And I think it's still, you know, now that that outbreak ended, uh, the attention really went away from that. Um, and people who I speak with who work in hospitals don't necessarily feel that they're more prepared. So I think just in general, keeping an eye on those and having drills and having experts being, you know, weigh in on that. Lessons learned during your response to Katrina that have been applied now at hospitals, hopefully not just in New Orleans, elsewhere. What changes were affected because of your experience? So um, in New Orleans, a lot of things changed. Uh, there were investments made particularly for, you could look at just Memorial Hospital itself, but this right. was more broadly 
um, where the, the hospital is reopened under a different name, but they uh, dug their own well, so they'll have a, a supply of water during a disaster. They, um, you know, raised the electrical system and, and protected it against flooding. Right. And the sad thing is that we see those kinds of improvements made in places that have had a disaster, but we see far less of that in places that haven't had a disaster. And I remember interviewing um, the preparedness expert for what was then JCO, it's now Joint Commission, uh, which is a big hospital accreditation provider, one of the main ones in the U.S. And they, um, shortly before 9-11, had started to come up with some standards that they wanted hospitals to follow for emergency preparedness and bioterrorism preparedness. And after doing this for years, this um, official told me that uh, this, this horrible conclusion, which was that he felt that the places that were most prepared for disasters, the hospitals, were the ones who had gone through them before. And not only ones who had gone through a disaster before, but ones who had gone through the same disaster before. That's not acceptable. How can we broaden these lessons? Um, and it really comes down, we haven't talked about this, but it's about, it's about resources, it's about money, and it's about political will. And if that doesn't exist, we can have all the lessons in the world, and um, we can know what we need to do, but we won't implement it. And, and they're uh, fair qu questions for policymakers and for, for people who run businesses, how much to invest in rare but foreseeable and potentially catastrophic events. And that, that only knowing the stakes uh, and the consequences of not preparing can we make decisions as a society and as poly policymakers about that. It's another question, form of triage. <laughs> had, had the hospital ever uh, read, sold, or played a what-if scenario with staff and local emergency planners? What if such and such happens? How do we respond? We, there's a lot of conceptual. There's a lot of tabletops with that. And, uh, had they done it before in your experience with hospitals generally? Did they ever, after uh, Katrina, did they plan out these scenarios? I, I think that um, one of the main uh, requirements of this new CMS rule is for um, two drills a year. But in terms of how realistic they have to be and whether the um, CMS will actually you know, enforce that to some great degree and look at that, that's a big question. I don't think right now we're, we're there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. Uh, thank you, Governor. Senator Daschle, Ken, do you have questions? I, 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 Dr. Fink, thank you very much for your your uh, presentation and your answers. I, I, the one word that I'd come back to that you've mentioned now very effectively more than once is trust. And I, I must say, as I think about scenarios, one of the things that I don't think we've given nearly enough attention to or, or priority to is the degree of misinformation that is possible as a result of an incident, especially if it's a biological incident of some kind. We saw a glimpse of that with Ebola, but with the extraordinarily orchestrated attacks on the media going on daily, with cybersecurity issues now being well documented, and the combination of those two factors along with social media, I think we have an extraordinary challenge in trying to discern truth from fiction and stay away from hyperbole and misstatement of fact. What advice, if any, would you have the 
for the panel on inoculation and preparation. What, what, what could we do uh, to inoculate and prepare more effectively for that plausible concoction of misinformation and the disaster it could cause? It, it's very well said, and it is very concerning. Um, uh, everything from one of the reasons that uh, experts believed that Ebola got so out of control in West Africa was in part because these were, in some cases, post-war societies, parts of countries where people didn't trust in government, didn't trust health institutions, um, and this was part of part of the mix in terms of trying to get people to change like the, the key important you know changing what they did to protect themselves and so that would and and we were not immune from that there was as you pointed out a lot of misinformation here in the US um, we had uh, you know one of the public health leaders have extraordinary powers for example to limit civil liberties to quarantine people and in some cases I interviewed health officials who did quarantine people coming back from West Africa, felt that it wasn't scientifically necessary, but they needed to do it to address fears of the public. And that, again, can backfire if you don't, if you aren't basing your actions on science. It, it's such a tricky mix. Um, social media is both uh, a threat to good knowledge, but also an opportunity. It allows certainly um, you know, communication with the public that had not, that had previously perhaps been mediated. Um, so now experts, for example, and uh, public institutions can use social media to, to get important messages out. But again, you need that baseline of trust. Um, there has been some research that you could look at in terms of the role of the media and public information and the level of public fear and proper versus improper understanding around Ebola. That has been looked at. And it was interesting because I used to go around saying, information is the antidote to fear, to use your analogy. Uh, I thought I, as somebody who went to West Africa for three months and reported you know, a ton of stories for the Times, I thought that was going to help tamp down fear. But in fact, some of the research suggests that um, sort of illogical fears um, went up not it just just purely based on the volume of coverage that we were giving these topics. So this is something really worth looking at. And I, th I think you've hit on something that could be um, very constructive going forward, looking at how to take some of those lessons and really prepare well around um, uh, that sort of issue of public trust and uh, communications. Thanks, Tom. Jen, do you have a question? Just if I may, a quick follow-on to Senator Dassels. Thanks for your presentation. Um, so you, you mentioned trust, you mentioned um, transparency, disclosure to the public, and you mentioned one thing that intrigued me. You said there should be, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but more upfront discussion from the government about vulnerabilities. And needless to say, our part of our mission here is to remind people that we are vulnerable and we need to act. But in terms of how that builds trust, what, what are you alluding to? It almost as though you, you're, you're thinking back to a particular incident where we might have engendered more public trust if we'd been more forthcoming about the vulnerabilities before those vulnerabilities became manifest. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, I, 
I can think of it as an individual, as a reporter, whenever a public official refuses to answer a question, I have a sense that I shouldn't trust them. <laughs> um, and that not just a public official, but anybody really, you know, and I think the public can feel the same way that, um, you know, what are they hiding? And so maybe being open about vulnerabilities is a way to both engender trust and also help the public understand why you want to make certain investments, uh, why you think the nation should have um, particular programs that, that have been discussed today. So it's uh, I don't have any science behind it. It's just more of, a, I guess, a, a logical thing, gut thing. Uh, thanks. You know, we started uh, late, and you've been so interesting. We're even later now. <laughs> Sorry. We started. So I'm, I'm afraid we have to end it here, but thank you very much. I hope we can keep in touch with you. Your experience and your ideas are very valuable. Thank you. So we welcome, we welcome the panel. Uh, my great pleasure to introduce our second panel. Uh, Dr. Connie Sabor-Price is the Chief Medical Officer of the Denver Health and Hospital. Uh, Dr. Jay Rappaport, Director of the National Primate Research Center at Tulane University. And Rear Admiral Stephen Ritt, Director of CDC Office of Public Health Preparedness and Response. Good to see you again, Director. Doctor, good to see you again. Uh, Dr. Price, if you would please commence. Is it on? Can you hear me? Okay. Uh, my name is Connie Price. I'm an infectious diseases physician who for 13 years before becoming chief medical officer served as the chief of infectious diseases and the healthcare epidemiologist at Denver Health, our uh, uh, county level one trauma public safety net institution in Denver, Colorado, and academic affiliate of the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Denver Health is also one of the nation's 10 designated regional Ebola treatment centers, um, and I now serve as chief medical officer for the institution. I'm telling you this because it colors a lot of my perspective of what I'm going to say today about uh, preparedness. Um, in addition to... Um, to my training background. Um, I also have some direct experience not only in thinking and ruling out Ebola and planning for Ebola in the hospital setting, but also as a frontline healthcare worker um, in 2003 in Toronto during the SARS epidemic. Um, I also investigated transmission of Middle East respiratory syndrome in hospitals in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, and have been a doctor through uh, several severe influenza seasons, including H1N1. Um, and as um, said before, I've had to consider even Ebola recently in my um, role as an infectious diseases physician at Denver Health. Uh, I've had the frustration of trying to create surveillance systems working with the CDC's Biosense system many years ago to try to help us better detect these incidences. So as I was saying, these experiences do color my thinking on both our strengths in preparedness as well as many vulnerabilities. And there are some common themes in all of these diseases, including SARS, MERS, Ebola, and uh, influenza. First, uh, in a large-scale event, 
the capacity of our healthcare system is inadequate. I think we all realize that, and that's why we're here today. Um, hospitals in most large population centers run at near full capacity as a on a daily basis. It's part of the economics of how hospitals have to run to meet their margin. Uh, in addition to just having the available beds, uh, specific needs such as ventilators, isolation rooms, pharmaceuticals, and access to specialty care physicians also are inadequate to treat a large-scale event. So if hospitals are going to be adequately prepared in a community or region, they're going to have to work together. But how do you get competing entities to do that? These are largely public, public, my hospital's a public hospital, but many of the larger systems in Colorado are private entity, for-profit entities. And they are not typically interested in working with each other. They're accustomed to competing with each other. Um, and so we have to think about how to break down that barrier and uh, get everybody uh, working off the same script during a disaster. The other issue that's unique to communicable infectious diseases um, for hospitals is that they're communicable. And uh, there's a lot of resistance to accept a patient into your hospital, especially if they didn't originally present to you. Uh, and for good reason, transmission of communicable diseases in healthcare settings is amplified. We saw this from our experience in SARS. Where did the transmission occur in the more developed regions? It really was in healthcare settings. Ebola in the United States, same thing. That's where we saw the transmission. And it's because we do things to patients that artificially aerosolize infectious particles. Um, we have hundreds of contacts a day with healthcare professionals and the patients, and there's many opportunities to transmit that you wouldn't otherwise get in other settings. Um, in addition, the patients in the hospitals are sick. That usually correlates with a degree of infectious uh, viral load or uh, bacterial burden. So all of those things uh, contribute to the amplification in the healthcare setting. And then you put overburdened staff who are taking care of their routine patients on top of a surge of infectious patients. Um, they may then uh, end up breaking protocol in their isolation uh, per personal protective equipment, or PPE as I'll call it. So these are challenges, the practical challenges of dealing with um, these types of events. And preparedness takes time and resource. Without that return on invest in investment, um, you're not going to have hospitals invest in that capability. Um, you can mandate it, and you know you may get uh, the re typical response to an unfunded mandate, which is here. Here's our plan. It's 100 pages, and you know we've done two drills. Thank you very much. Now move on. Um, so we need to make this um, very real. But I think that, you know, even though these barriers sound daunting, and I don't mean to be completely negative, I think we have made progress. Um, we had the opportunity in Denver to test our response recently for, uh, to a suspected Ebola patient. So on a beautiful Sunday morning, um, of course it was a Sunday, uh, in July in, in, in Denver, 
All of us were sitting in either our bike gear or climbing gear or whatever and got a call about a 27-year-old male who presented to our emergency department with fever, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And he had reported recent travel to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now, he reported travel in an area that was not at that day, at that time, known to have recent Ebola transmission. Still, because of the way he presented, if he were to have Ebola, he would have been at a very highly infectious uh, timing of his, uh, of his illness. And we had no wiggle room to be wrong. So we uh, opted to rule him out, as we call it in uh, medical lingo, and um, bring him in to have a lab test and a full history and physical done. Uh, I can tell you, um, because of some of the resource we have had since 2014, remember I told you we're a regional Ebola treatment center, we've had resource for our nurses to do quarterly drills and our physicians to do quarterly drills on donning and doffing personal protective equipment. We've had resource to build our own uh, biocontainment unit uh, with a lab, with autoclave capabilities, um, with uh, transport pathways, with dedicated elevators, all of these things to be able to accommodate such a patient. And I was very pleased with the medical response in this event. Um, we feel we have gone a long way, and uh, the, the structure put in place um, and the resources of the National Ebola uh, Training and Education Center really served us well. Um, where we've uh, really had difficulty is um, what Dr. Fink referenced is more in the communication and intersecting with our public health colleagues around who's in charge and how to communicate to reassure our public. This got a lot of attention, um, caused a lot of angst in our community. We were ready to communicate our negative test result by 1 p.m. that day. But because of a desire from three different public health agencies wanting to coordinate a response uh, and uh, have a joint press release, we could not get all the approvals we needed to communicate something to our public until about 4 or 5 p.m., at which time then the other entity said, you know what, you guys just do it on your own. So we felt that that could have been much better. We could have been more reassuring and allowed um, others to go about their Sunday and enjoy that beautiful day and not be afraid of Ebola in their community. Um, many other lessons learned, and we can get to those in the Q&A session, but I want to give some time also to my other colleagues to give their opening statements. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Uh, so I, I'm, in, I'm the uh, director of the Tulane National Primate Research Center. I've only been in this position since June, so I wanted to tell you how I came to have this position and what my, you know, and I appreciate the opportunity to present my perspectives. Um, I, the previous director, uh, Dr. Andrew Lackner, had passed away a year ago, April. He was director of the facility during the uh, outbreak of Burkholderia pseudomallei, which I think the panel is, is, is interested in. Uh, through, through that time and through uh, some years surrounding that, I, I actually had served on the NIH panels that had reviewed uh, all of the National Primate Research Centers, with the exception 
of Tulane. So six out of the seven standing National Primate uh, Research Center. So that actually, I think, is why I was one of the candidates, reliable candidates. And in uh, accepting this position, I also take responsibility of the select agent program, uh, biosafety, and, uh, you know, and I can give you my perspective on uh, the importance of, of biosafety, biosecurity, also non-human primate research, and our status of research, I think, with uh, in terms of what's going on in the rest of the world. So the, the incident that is in question occurred uh, November 2014 to February 2015. We had three animals that were three uh, rhesus macaques that were uh, inadvertently infected with uh, Burkholderia pseudomallei. Uh, these animals uh, were euthanized. Uh, the incident was reported. There was an extensive investigation by the USDA, CDC, EPA, and there was a multi-agency uh, investigation and response to the incident, uh, interacting with local officials uh, together with the, with the leadership and staff that was at uh, at the Tulane National Primate Research Center. So we have a fairly secure environment. Uh, we are um, the only National Primate Center that has a regional biosafety laboratory with a select agent program. We have a number of select agents that are in use. Um, this particular incident uh, led to some important lessons uh, one is that uh, we had to um, really step up our levels of containment, our standard operating procedures that had to be robust and strict. Uh, Dr. Laura Levy, who, was the vice who is the vice president for research, hired uh, uh, Angie Birnbaum, who's, who's here with us today, uh, as director of biosafety. Uh, for Tulane. She managed the response to the incident, the investigation, and the response, and is now director of biocontainment with the Regional Biosafety Laboratory there. So we had a, a massive response. We had, uh, we had to examine all of our procedures because it could not be ascertained what the specific step that led to this release of Burkholderia. So Everything had to be looked at. Uh, so the entire program, the entire biosafety program was revamped, uh, revitalized, and, and went from something that was you know, questionable based on the release to now that I think is probably the best uh, biosafety program in the nation and has really exemplary, exemplary status. So we actually have had our, uh, after 16 months, we've had our select agent status um, reinstated in 2016. Uh, in retrospect, we were very fortunate. One, that it only had affected a few animals. Uh, it had not spread to any humans. It had not infected the water supply. We had tested the water, the soil. Uh, this agent can be found in, in water and soil. Nor normally in, in Southeast Asia, it's not found in the United States. It was confirmed that this was a laboratory strain, so we do know uh, where it came from, but we were very fortunate that this incident had not caused uh, more more of a problem, uh, you know, within within the animal population and also with the uh, with the human population in, in in the region. 
So this actually brings us to um, consequences uh, of and our vulnerability for the assessment uh, for, for uh, future outbreaks. Um, all of the select agents, uh, with the exception of smallpox, come from wildlife, come from animals. We don't really know when the next one is going to be, the H1N1, uh, Zika. These are examples of the, the unknown unknowns. So it's very difficult to predict when the next uh, outbreak will be, and if, if it's not uh, really if, it's when. So my, my perspective, coming as a director of one of the National Primate Research Centers, and I've talked about this with all the other directors, we have weekly calls by telephone. We meet in person twice a year in meetings. We just had one. Um, so we are extremely under-resourced nationally regarding the ability of non-human primates for research, and this includes biodefense studies. Now, I say this is extremely important because the nature of these agents, the nature of select agents is such that the medical countermeasures that are developed cannot be tested in humans. They have to be tested in animals. And the non-human primates are the quintessential, most translatable, most valuable asset in terms of research relative, related to to such an outbreak. There was recently a uh, needs assessment performed by the NIH, a survey done by Sherry Hill um, from, uh, uh, from OREP. And the conclusions which are being written now are that we are extremely under-resourced with non-human primates. There are certain species that I can tell you about probably in the next three to five years, will we'll be 10 to 20 percent under-resourced in rhesus macaques. Um, and this does not include, this includes just normal research grants, you know, the, the normal day-to-day. -day. It does not include the surge or, or um, an, an outbreak of consequence, which would divert and necessitate the commandeering at this point of non-human <coughs> primate research. The biosafety level four facilities that we have in this country are few and have very little space. It's been proposed that we should use small monkeys in these facilities, such as marmosets or cinemologous monkeys. Marmosets right now are extremely rare. There's a demand for them for gene editing studies. A few years ago, nobody knew what to do with them. Now, you can't get them because gene editing studies, the ability to manipulate DNA, to create transgenic animals, to, in, to cure mutations or to create mutations, has caused an extreme demand for these. So a lot of these are in matings now to produce more, and you can't really, um, they're, they're in really short supply for research. The cinemologous monkeys or, or crab-eating macaques are almost exclusively coming from China. China is selling sinos at lower prices than we can generate them. They're also luring U.S. investigators and some Chinese investigators that came over in the 80s and 90s back to China because they're building enormous 
non-human primate facilities capable of doing non-human primate research and also with the ability to do gene editing studies. They're charging so small amounts of money. Here it may cost $6,000 for a CINO, over there it's $1,500. So they are luring investigators over there. This is going to be a drain on our intellectual capital, okay, and it's also going to be uh, some investigators are worried that we, in the future we will not have the appropriate models here to work with. Now, I know tariffs aren't going to do it because that will not prevent investigators from going to China, and I'm not in favor of, of, of taxing uh, this supportive research. But we have to think about how, how we subsidize our research enterprise. Right now, studies with, res with rhesus macaques, or with monkeys in general, non-human primate research right now, is about 1% of the total NIH budget. If you look at the National Primate Research Centers, who really supply the infrastructure for basic research for, for, uh, for non-human primates, we're probably talking about point, uh, less than a quarter of a percent. So we're talking about fairly small relatively uh, small amounts of money. But nevertheless, the NIH budget has increased 5% this year to 2019 and probably, uh, you know, about, you know, 4 to 5% over the past few years. Nevertheless, the non-human primate research centers have not received an increase. Their budget has been basically flat. And in, in terms of inflation-adjusted dollars, we're actually losing ground we're supporting more and more research in R01 grants, program projects, contracts that we do for the, for the NIH. Uh, we have a vaccine evaluation unit. We do contracts uh, for AIDS vaccines. You know, we do quite a bit of, of research. That research is increasing. But the infrastructure, the money we have for our infrastructure uh, remains flat or is decreasing. During the sequestration, 2013, uh, the, the New England Primate Center was closed. That was, that was one of the initial eight. The funds for the, re, for the New England Primate Center was not distributed to the other seven, despite the fact that, we, that many of the resources were distributed. There was some funds that were distributed on a one-time basis, but that sequestration actually, if you look on the graph, I don't have slides to show you, but that actually caused a dip in the funding to, to the national uh, primate centers. So I, I think that um, when we think about it, um, it we're, we're, we really need to um, take action here. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry, we've talked about the private sector, pharmaceutical industry almost exclusively uses cinemologous macaques. Right now, none of the non-human national primate centers are breeding them. We have an epidemic coming for Alzheimer's disease. It's not another issue, but uh, African green monkeys are probably the best model, and none of the non-human primate centers are breeding them right now. It takes time to establish these colonies, to have the appropriate number of animals in breeding, and to have the animals available to do uh, studies on demand as what happened 
uh, during, during um, an attack. So I think our, we're quite vulnerable now in terms of our position in the world, given what's going on globally, the fact that our pharmaceutical industry is dependent on China. Studies done in China require specifications of products introduced into these animals to the point that they will be able to acquire the intellectual, or, or let's say, steal the intellectual property, okay, that would not happen in studies in the United States where studies, such studies can become, um, which can be done uh, more, more con confidentially. So I, th I think we're, we're really at a, at a tipping point and we need to take uh, some actions here. Um, so I, I have some uh, recommendations and I, I know that you know, we were asked to come up with some actionable items and these require funding. One is the funding for the regional biosafety laboratories. These were put up um, 10 years ago or so over, you know, the concerns over biosafety, uh, thanks to the concerns of this panel and, and, and others. Um, we have, there are 13 regional biosafety laboratories, 11 of them uh, use rodents. There are two that use non-human primates. We are one, the other one is in Pittsburgh. The regional biosafety laboratories, where their construction was supported by uh, federal dollars. There are no dollars available for the maintenance of those facilities. And these facilities are extremely complex and difficult and expensive to maintain. Ours is a single floor but there's a floor above it we call the penthouse. And if you go in there, all you see is ductwork, uh, okay, and, and HVAC systems, controls. There's incredible redundancy that's built into these systems. If the airflow were to stop, for example, and we're using an agent, let's say Burkleberia or tuberculosis, which we use, we have a, we have a, a, a system where, where uh, we can create aerosols and expose animals to aerosols and infect them by in aerosol chambers. If the airflow were to stop, we would have a risk of release infection of the people within the facility. So there are multiple redundancies built in that are tested under conditions of failure. And this is a, a very expensive uh, to, to, uh, to maintain. We are actually in a better position than some of the other regional biosafety laboratories because located at Tulane, we have quite a bit of additional research support. We have access to other funds available that we have been able to uh, do a better job in supporting this a lot better than the freestanding regional biosafety laboratories. So my recommendations for this is one is to provide financial support through the Department of Defense to support strategic reserves. This is actually for the non-human primates and the actual cost of this would be $40 million to increase, to have a, a non-human primate reserve. And I came up with this figure based on what the cost of the base grant is for the what we call the P51s that support uh, the non-human primate centers, and this would be, let's say, a 50% uh, uh, a 
increase on the base grant that would allow an, an increase in the number of animals should there be a, an outbreak that uh, such animals would be available. What was the dollar figure? It was uh, $40 million. Okay. Additional support for biosafety operations and facilities for, for select agent uh, laboratories based on size, complexity, and risk. This is $20 million. I think we're probably spending at least $2 million on ours. And, I would, and ours, I think, is the largest, has the largest capacity, and is the most complex. Uh, and then I would ask for an additional funds for select agent research for uh, as of $100 million, $100 million. This is all annual cost. Uh, I think to, without the f continued funding for select agent research, there are quite a few organizations, academic institutions that are just dropping their select agent programs because these are also expensive to run. So, uh, you know, I, I, we need the intellectual capacity. We need the continuous uh, research, improvement. We need to have scientists engaged in select, in select agent problems. And they'll all, they and their staff would then be trained to do such research. So without continuous funding, I think a lot of this, this infrastructure is in jeopardy. Um, so that gives you a cost of 160 million total, annual. And, and, and I'd also like to say that we need to engage our biosafety professionals more in terms of the responses that we see, not only in the research setting, but in the hospital setting. As, as uh, Dr. Price mentioned, a lot of the transmission you see is in the hospitals. Biosafety professionals are a lot more, let's say, have, have the better training to train others in, in these practices. Um, and uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. And um, it's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. Um, and I wanted to start by just um, commending the work of the Blue Ribbon Panel. I think it is very, um, very important to have voices outside of government continuing uh, to maintain the focus on uh, being ready for health emergencies, whether they are from natural sources, uh, by accident, or um, by intention. Um, our work at CDC um, is intended to prevent these kinds of events when that's possible, when that is not possible, or we don't prevent the event to make sure that we've got the earliest possible um, detection and response capability. What, um, what I will um, talk about today is uh, the H1N1 response. I was the, uh, the incident commander for that response, and I'll um, reflect a little bit on what we learned through that event, what we have corrected, and then some reflections just kind of from a larger picture of how we need to think about these uh, large-scale responses. Um, first, the um, events like H1N1, Ebola, and Zika uh, are going to continue to occur and uh, will, over time, um, occur more frequently because of trends that are, um, are evident today. Uh, much more global travel, 
uh, growth in the world's population, particularly in cities. Uh, the number of cities with populations over 10 million was 2 million in 1960. It'll probably be in the range of 40 million in the next decade. Uh, sorry, four, not 40 million, 40 cities. Um, uh, that growth is occurring in urban areas, and much of that growth, virtually all of it in African cities, is among people who are very poor. Um, the, um, the likelihood of coming into contact with animals is also increasing with the number of uh, poultry and swine increasing. There's a chance of contacting domesticated animals and encroachment on wilderness areas can lead to outbreaks uh, like we're seeing in the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo right now. Um, the last trend that I would point out is the availability of communication technology. Overall, that's great that we can communicate around the world quickly and at almost no cost, but it also um, increases or makes the spread of violent ideologies much easier. Uh, we've heard also about the ease of spreading misinformation. So these are things that are um, making um, emergencies um, more likely and more difficult to manage. Um, but let me, um, let me take us back to 2005. Um, that was um, when the uh, threat of a global pandemic was really highlighted by the Bush administration and some very important preparatory measures were undertaken. Um, the um, H5N1 influenza virus was uh, spreading from East Asia south to Indonesia and west uh, through Asia into Africa. And the, um, the U.S. government led a really global effort to be prepared. Uh, the UN, uh, the World Health Organization, there was a, a, a body called the International Partnership on Avian and Pandemic Influenza. Uh, there was also very intensive work with, um, with state governments and state health departments to get ready. Secretary Levitt traveled to every state to meet with governors and encourage preparation. His message was that the federal government will help, but in a severe pandemic, there's not the possibility of uh, focusing uh, human and financial resources, and so, so states needed to be ready to, uh, to uh, respond on their own. A, a national strategy for pandemic influenza was published in November 2005. An implementation plan was published the following May, uh, and there was very uh, detailed follow-up on the 320 deliverables with public reporting periodically. Uh, there was substantial funding just, just for CDC on the range of a billion and a half dollars for pandemic preparedness, and that was in addition to work after 9-11 and the anthrax attacks to be ready for, uh, for public health emergencies. We undertook an intensive uh, planning and exercise process. In 2007 and in 2008, we conducted five functional exercises. These were 24-hour-a-day uh, exercises where we practiced what we thought a severe influenza pandemic would look like, um, including mock uh, press interviews, uh, notional conversations with the World Health Organization, with officials uh, high in government, and with state health officers. Um, and in fact, we were planning a, a, a sixth functional exercise for the spring of 2009 uh, when uh, the H1N1 virus was, uh, was identified. Uh, we had planned that the virus 
the pandemic would start outside of the United States and we would have time to characterize the severity and the transmissibility, but um, as we know, uh, that's not what happened. We, um, we first identified the virus at a weekly pandemic preparedness meeting that took place at CDC. It was on a Wednesday morning, kind of the end of the meeting. Uh, someone from the lab on the phone called at a 10-year-old uh, boy in Southern California had been diagnosed with a, a virus that hadn't been seen before. It was actually part of a, uh, a clinical study done by the Navy on a prototype diagnostic device. The device would identify flu viruses within 30 minutes, and it gave a positive test for flu, but none of the seasonal viruses. So at CDC, we genotyped that virus and found that it was a swine, it was related to swine influenza viruses that had last been seen about 10 years before. And it was really, people didn't know what to make of it. They, we expected that there'd be an investigation and there would be an exposure to swine at a petting zoo or, or something. Uh, the next day, uh, sorry, on Friday, two days later, a second case was identified, and this individual did not have any contact with the first individual, and by that time we knew that ne neither of them up till had, had any exposure to swine, so we knew something was up. Uh, we decided to publish a report on these two cases, uh, and that was done on the following Tuesday, so six days later. Um, as we were publishing that, cases were identified in Texas, and um, on the Thursday, eight days after the initial detection, we got a report from Canada that uh, severely ill individuals from Mexico had been diagnosed as being infected with that same virus. Six deaths, 10 people in hospital, and that led to a um, a call with uh, the White House and with uh, uh, people in the Department of Health and Human Services. And there were two questions that came up on that call. The first was, how bad is it going to be? And the second is, what are we going to do? I actually think these are probably the same questions that would come up in any event. Um, they weren't things that we had actually practiced answering in our exercises. Um, Rich Besser answered the first question. He said it was an eight on a scale of one to 10. Now, no one knew really. We had um, severe cases in Mexico, a handful of very mild cases in the US. Um, but he, in, later he said he, he gave that number because he knew it would get people's attention. Um, the second question was what are we going to do? And I answered that question and it, it seems kind of obvious now, but at the moment of getting that question, it wasn't so obvious. Um, my answer was that we would work to understand the severity and transmissibility, kind of how this question of we needed to learn more to be able to really answer the first question. Um, the, second, um, the second thing we would do is we would implement individual control measures. In fact, we'd already done some of that, recommendations for drug treatment, for um, personal protective equipment, hand washing, cover, covering coughs. And we would begin to implement community measures, uh, begin to develop a vaccine, uh, make decisions about whether schools should be closed or not, and um, a process of notifying uh, travelers to countries and locations where cases were occurring. 
there were many, many decisions that were needed in those first couple of weeks of the event. Uh, and I think that's also a characteristic of these kinds of events is that most of the important decisions have to be made before you have all the information. Uh, and there's also a lag between making the decision and being able to implement it. In, in the case of vaccine production, we started production of a vaccine in April and weren't able, didn't have vaccine to deliver until October 5th. I'm now gonna just skip to the end. Um, there were 60 million cases in the US, 12, a uh, little bit more than 12,000 deaths, 10% of those in children. Uh, we were able to vaccinate 81 million people and probably could have vac vaccinated more except the peak of vaccine availability occurred after the peak of disease. Uh, those efforts prevented 10 million cases and 1,500 deaths. So what we learned from H1N1, um, first thing was that our everyday public health systems provided the foundation for the response. Two quick examples, the system that we used to track the disease was the same system that we use for seasonal influenza year, year after year. Um, our system to distribute vaccine was built on the system that's used to uh, ship vaccines for children vastly augmented, but basically using that same system. Second uh, major lesson, it's been talked about a little bit, uh, communication was a, a major, major effort. And the aim of that communication was to sustain trust that the government response was effective and that we were being truthful when things didn't go well and when they, um, when they did go well. Uh, Med third, medical countermeasures are a key capability. The, the vaccine, the time to produce vaccine, its effectiveness uh, were not what we would hope for. And antiviral drugs, we had them in abundance, but they're not as effective as we would like them to be. Um, lastly, um, preparation paid off. There was some mention about the use of the incident command system, how that wasn't used in the anthrax event. Uh, for in H1N1, we had a practiced incident command system that we used. It really uh, facilitated uh, internal um, awareness so that we knew the facts that we knew. Um, in terms of things that have been corrected um, since, the, uh, since the H1N1 epidemic, we have, um, we have better tools. Uh, we have, uh, we have, taken weeks off of the time from beginning vaccine production to having it available and through work primarily from Bar through BARDA, we're able to make much larger quantities of vaccine. Um, we still need um, better influenza vaccines, vaccines that would be more effective, longer lasting, and would um, be effective against a broader, broader number of strains where we don't have to make it each time for um, each strain that emerges. Um, we've developed better means of distributing countermeasures. Uh, we have worked closely to uh, increase the throughput of vaccination, primarily by being able to vaccinate at pharmacies. Uh, we just don't have enough providers without pharmacies to be able to vaccinate the number of people and the number of doses that we would need to in a severe pandemic. Um, and we have also 
work to establish a system of telephone, telephone prescribing for antiviral drugs that could be used in a severe pandemic, again, to uh, increase the capacity for drug treatment. We've also worked hard to understand the information that we have so that in those early days uh, when a pandemic is uh, beginning, we can organize the information that we have and compare it to other, either other pandemics or other seasons of influenza. Um, just to close now with some overarching lessons, uh, in events like this, it is very important to question implicit assumptions. And the one that I would point out in H1N1 was um, we were using the same methods to produce uh, influenza vaccine that were used for seasonal influenza vaccine. And so we assumed that there would be a certain rate of production. And that turned out to be a false assumption that we really, we were, we were looking at it and we were watching it, but this, this bias that there's going to be about this much vaccine produced per egg uh, was, was hard, to, hard to disabuse ourselves of. Um, I'd say also when events like this occur, we need a combination of um, humility and confidence. And in this, from the standpoint of humility, uh, we need to recognize that initially we're not really going to know what the situation is, and it is possible that a very, um, a very bad influenza pandemic it would be catastrophic regardless of how effective our response is. Um, until we can actually prevent a pandemic from occurring, uh, it, it could be a really bad thing. Uh, I think we have to have confidence to know, to know what we know and take action even when all the information isn't available. Uh, third item here is that overwhelming events will require teamwork across agencies and across sectors. And the best thing that we can do in the short term to improve that is to exercise and make sure that we're making uh, improvements based on those exercises. Um, and lastly, very, this is the very final thing, uh, we, uh, we need to be able to measure our capabilities to be able to say with confidence where we're improving and where we're not improving. There have been several efforts in the last five years to improve our ability to understand exactly where we are, and I think that those are very important benchmarks to help us really understand how much more we need to do. Thanks very much. Thank you. Senator Dashwood. Thank you, Governor. Senator Dashwood. Uh, Dr. Rudd, let me just pick up where you where you uh, left off with your last comment about measurement. I, you know, we've, we're, we're, we're talking today about the progress to the extent we've made progress over the last 17 years since the anthrax uh, experience uh, in 2001. You all come to the table with enormous uh, wealth of experience uh, with insights and with uh, with a judgment that has been based on that experience and uh, and your uh, your views as you've learned from them, we haven't talked much today yet about the national strategy for biodefense, um, and I, I would really love to get based on your experience and your judgment uh, what progress you think we've actually made. I, I frankly I'm somewhat pessimistic that we haven't come nearly as far as I wish we would have in the last 17 years. On a scale of one to 10, I'd give us about a four. 
maybe you can disabuse me of that uh, that ranking. But I think it takes three things. It takes first real leadership. We've had it sporadically. We haven't had it consistently. It takes an enormous amount of coordination. And we've had that uh, occasionally, not consistently. And it takes resources. Uh, we don't have the resources applied. Uh, and, and so I, I think the real question is, as we measure where we are today, realistically, uh, have we adequately prepared? Are we adequately uh, 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 capable of addressing a, a, a catastrophic experience uh, way beyond what, what we did with the anthrax uh, in 2001? Um, to whatever extent you can give me, give us your judgment around those questions uh, as, we, as we now apply this new national strategy on biodefense. Uh, I'd love to have your insights. Maybe we'll just go down the line and that'll be my only question. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with your assessment. I do think we've made some strides uh, since 2001. Uh, and I guess I'm intrigued with each time we deal with these issues, we have, we've learned lessons, how well we've applied them well, we still have that opportunity. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the, the structure that I thought served us well in our um, Ebola scare was this concept of regional preparedness centers and sort of a tiered system where you have uh, frontline health facilities that really should be able to evaluate or um, suspect a uh, potential communicable disease coming into the facility and could take care of a high consequence pathogen for 24 hours. Then you have your treatment or your assessment hospitals that could take care of a patient for a little bit longer, maybe up to five days, resource and capability up to that point. And then your treatment centers and regional treatment centers that could really uh, take care of the patients for the whole duration. Um, for something that is a smaller scale, like an Ebola, maybe even like a SARS, I think that structure would work. Um, when we're dealing with like an H1N1 though, I mean that would be so widespread that really that structure then becomes more of a resource structure where the treatment centers can maybe inform and um, provide guidance or, you know, telephonic consultation with specialty support, something like that, to uh, other hospitals because everybody's gonna have to take care of patients. And so, I, you know, I think it, we do have to recognize first what kind, you know, are we planning for, what kind of events we're planning for and really put realistic plans in for the type of event that's most likely and that we're more, more likely to see, is it widespread like um, the H1N1, or are we really worried more about those really high consequence infectious pathogens where we have to detect that first case and, um, you know, uh, take care of them and prevent transmission? Yeah, thank you. I, I agree with uh, what uh, Dr. Price said. I think we've, we have made strides. Um, I think we've, we've, uh, we've come some distance. We have a ways to go. Uh, I think Vince Lombardi said, if you strive for uh, perfection, you'll achieve excellence. So I think it's nice to really set the bar high, and hopefully we'll, we'll get as, as high as we can. Uh, there are a lot of things we can do. I come at this from 
you know, from the research area and development of, of, of the, the medical countermeasures, um, you know, I, I think we need to do um, more, as I said, more support for non-human primates. I think we need to do uh, comparisons of various platforms for vaccines. For example, DNA vaccines versus protein vaccines versus, you know, viral vectors, killed vaccines, live vaccines. I mean, I think in terms of influenza, it's basically a combinatorial problem. There's only so many hemagglutinins and so many neuraminidases, H's and N's, and whatever the combination is, that's what you have. So um, to generate the proper combination is, uh, you know, there, there, there may be possibilities to do that fairly, fairly simply, uh, including multiple uh, hemagglutins, multiple neuraminidases in the same vaccine, or to generate them rather quickly in, in, a, in a platform like DNA vaccine would allow. So I think there's, there could be some research to, to compare those and, and try to see which would be the most rapidly deployed in the case of, of such, a, such an event. So in terms of what has been accomplished, uh, there, a huge amount has been accomplished since 9-11 uh, since and the anthrax attacks. If just looking at what state capabilities have been built, every state has an in incident command structure, an emergency operations center. They are linked with their emergency management um, staff so that there's much, much better coordination within state governments. The, the, we've talked about the laboratory response network, so there's that ability to make laboratory diagnoses that didn't exist before or before the pre-9-11 period. Uh, there also are um, substantial staff in state and local government available to respond that weren't, weren't there uh, beforehand. Uh, we've made strides in uh, the dispensing mission when medical countermeasures are delivered to a jurisdiction. There are plans that have been exercised as to how to do that. There uh, are also, there's also been important gains in the ability to communicate that are tested regularly. Uh, there also are systems to measure those capabilities. I'll point out two. One is the National Health Security Preparedness Index. It's an annual review external to the government measure, that measures each state's capabilities in a number of domains. Um, at CDC, we are working with states to measure their operational readiness. There's a, a questionnaire and then a site visit to make sure that those plans and exercises are uh, available to demonstrate capability. Um, so I think, I think we've made a lot of progress. I, I think this is not something that we're ever going to be at a point where we say we are prepared. It's really uh, measuring where we are and building capabilities where we need those and then sustaining them. So I think there is a kind of a, a capital procurement that's that creating that capability and then making sure it's sustained on an ongoing basis. Yes, um, Admiral Red, um, thank you for your presentation. Um, as you know, I worked on the flu preparation plan with you and, uh, and the implementation. And I was quite uh, pleased with the success we had in limiting H1N1. Uh, but the numbers you talk about in terms of um, there were between 10 and 15,000 deaths, I believe, and you say that our efforts uh, 
or the government's efforts prevented another 1,500 deaths. Uh, if you look at this year, we had almost 80,000 deaths from flu, and the typical year is about 36,000 deaths. Do you think that H1N1 was an example of a successful response that limited the number of deaths, or do you think it just wasn't really the eight that uh, Dr. Besser had feared it would be? Um, I think it turned out not to be an eight. That, that would be one thing. I, I think that the, the measure of success was uh, – largely that we were able to maintain the trust of the public. And, and that was not by saying it was going to be worse than it turned out to be, but, but by ongoing communication about what we knew about the severity, what we were doing, what members of the public should do. Uh, we actually had, uh, in the summer of 2009, we invited media to CDC for a week-long media boot camp to teach them about influenza. And, I, you know, I think there's not many events that have a, a beginning and then a lull and then, a, then an increase, but I think that that was a great opportunity to really tell people what we thought was going to happen and what, what we as the government would do. That, that's a really excellent point. I just want to make one, one quick follow-up, which is if you all remember that this took place in March of 2009 when we just had a new government, and at that point, for a variety of reasons, there was not a single confirmed political official at HHS at that point. And so the career staff really did a tremendous job in that communication in showing a kind of um, – uh, a, a government spirit and showing that, th that they were in charge and they had the expertise and it really was a, 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 an example of the system working well even in a period of transition and flux. Uh, Dr. Rappaport, uh, first of all, on a personal note, uh, I noticed you work at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple. Lou was a a great personal friend of mine, an extraordinary philanthropist, and uh, I suspect your association was even in a personal and professional way deeper than mine. He was quite a remarkable man, wasn't he? He, he sure was, and we're very grateful that you know he endowed the, the yeah. School of Medicine, and, and he really changed things there so much for the better. Yeah, yeah. No, no question about yeah. it. Yes, yes. Uh, given your work in uh, with HIV and with primates, just a person to ask this question. I read articles from time to time that tell me that uh, computers and artificial intelligence can ultimately substitute for the kind of work you do on primates and other animals. And I'd like you to, uh, I'd like you to address that from your, your experience. Okay, for, from it's a pretty open-ended question, so okay, take I, it wherever you want to go. Okay, um, I'll I just give you a, an interesting story. In 1995, when the first protease inhibitor was discovered, um, David Ho was on the was on the cover of Time, Man of the Year. HIV was cured, okay, because their mathematical models predicted that if a patient was on antiretroviral therapy long enough, the virus would be extinguished. This was all based on calculations, mathematical models. So I think when you, what you put into the computer and what is is <laughs> really determines what you get out, and a lot of it is based on your assumptions. If your assumptions aren't correct, then you're not going to get the right information. Right now, I, even with HIV, I think we're lacking the full information. And more and more information is coming every day in terms of what the best methods are for cure, vaccines. And so, I, I, you know, I, right now I don't see that the computer is taking over because we would have to input to them the, the, all of the correct 
assumptions and all the information the computer needs to know, and still we're, we're trying to figure it out. When the computers can start doing experiments and start coming up with hypotheses and testing them, and I know there's something called machine learning, but I, there's still programming involved there, and you know we're still driving the ship with that. So right now, I think uh, we're it's it's uh, it's dependent on us to do the research and you know and and use the computers as we can to test hypotheses. Yeah, I, I appreciate the candor. I, I I thought about that in terms of everybody thinks they can run. I mean, it's it's an exciting world uh, for science and technology and the collaboration, but. I guess I personally wouldn't want to rely on it exclusively for any medical countermeasure. I'd rather, the combination of both will serve the country well, I would yes, presume. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Price, you said something very interesting, and I made note of it. You were out, the team was out in a nice July day. You got a bunch of calls, but there was no wiggle room. I like that, no, no wiggle. wiggle room. Uh, get the diagnosis wrong. Now, you were at a regional Ebola treatment center at the time, so that center and you, because of your experience and apparently several other people there, everybody pretty confident you weren't going to get it wrong, and you didn't. So the question becomes, one, do all the regional centers, be it for Ebola or, and I'd like to know if there are other pathogens, have people such as yourself and people with the experience in these particular specialties uh, and is that how a either regional set treatment center is, is created, or do they place the specialists such as yourself to create a, 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 a center of excellence? Yeah, so we had to apply to be a regional treatment center, and as part of that, we had to have the capability, so that the specialists, the ability to diagnose, and, and um, those resources. Um, and part of what we uh, need to do, I think, better going forward, should this structure continue, is the outreach to our rural hospitals to provide, to, to teach them how to identify, you know, some methods they can use. And even just everyday infection prevention as sort of their backup. Um, so, for instance, um, you don't have to be an ID specialist to know that if a patient comes in with a cough and fever, you don't want it, whether it's SARS or whether it's just the common cold. And can we start moving all of us as healthcare providers on the front lines to a paradigm where this is just our routine, that we have this approach to evaluating patients as sort of that backup measure. I think that's what we need to start working with all of our community counterparts on. I mean, the analogy would be pre-HIV days. Remember, we used to draw blood without gloves. You can't even, it would feel funny to do that now. Um, and I think we should start thinking about it for other high, you know, just high consequence infectious diseases and just the regular everyday infectious diseases we don't want. I appreciate that. Unfortunately, we've got such a time crunch, but we appreciate this panel's your contribution to our discussion. And thank you again for your broader service to the, the broader community, not just in your individual communities, but to the country. Thank you very, very much, Admiral. Thank you. You all know where the restrooms are. But we're going to ask Dr. O'Toole to come forward. It'd be a pleasure for me to do, introduce uh, Dr. O'Toole. I've known her for quite some time. 
their areas of interest and expertise are uh, pretty well documented, broad range from biodefense to cybersecurity. So, uh, Dr. O'Toole, great to see you again, and thank you for uh, joining us this afternoon. I don't know. It doesn't sound like it to me. Okay. All right. Good. I see why everybody's confused. So um, I uh, prepared some remarks, which became um, overtaken by events around 10:30 this morning. So I'm going to try and um, sketch a few thoughts, um, some of which emanate from the previous discussion, and I want to thought start by acknowledging all of the uh, current and former government officials and colleagues, current and former, uh, in the room, and just echo the observation that's been made by many on the panel, um, which is the importance of individual initiative in this. A lot of people in this room have been heroes, mostly unsung, and that can't stop. I would also note that most of us are closer to the end of our career than the beginning. And maintaining the momentum that we have, such as it is, is going to require uh, the recruitment of a lot of talent uh, into the government and elsewhere. Um, I want to make um, a couple of um, points. First of all, we've talked about the evolution of the threat. And it is evolving because of the uh, social and commercial factors that Steve Red mentioned um, and are increasingly frequent encounters with new organisms. It's also evolving because of the trajectory of uh, what I'm going to call the bio-revolution, which I think is the missing elephant in the room. Uh, we are getting um, increasing ability to manipulate organisms and indeed life, and um, that is going to translate into a um, bioeconomy, which will give a lot more people access to the skills and knowledge needed to manipulate organisms. Um, but the bioeconomy and the biorevolution are also the way through this perilous time. And we have not done enough to take advantage of the advances in science and technology uh, that are happening and that could happen. So I'm going to sp speak mostly about technology, which we haven't talked about much today. And indeed, public health has a penchant for focusing on process and consensus and policy for good reason. Um, but I want to suggest that we can get uh, an awful lot of power from technology if we um, thought about uh, it more and built the infrastructure necessary to capture uh, it and put it to use. So I'm going to make a couple of main points. Um, first of all, I want to talk about the technologies that we could have in the next three to five years that would give us significant improved capabilities in the managing of epidemics. Okay. And this would uh, take money, a lot more than we're talking about today, but nothing compared to line items in the defense budget. Um, and it would also take a new approach to the public-private infrastructure that we need uh, that Dr. Lillybridge mentioned, and I'm going to come back to that. Um, 
to frame the conversation, let's just imagine we're in an epidemic. We know we're in an epidemic, and we need to manage it better. And indeed, this is a skill set we've been working on for decades now and have gotten much better at. Um, but again, if I had to pick um, with my magic wand, I would give us three sets of technologies to give us um, a uh, significant improvement in our ability to manage epidemics, naturally occurring epidemics of infectious disease. Um, first, we, meaning everybody who is involved in epidemic response, including academics as well as public health officials and politicians, need to do a much better job collecting and using information to guide decision-making and response actions. There are lots of technologies already in use in the commercial sector that could aid us in this endeavor and help enable real-time data collection, improve the speed and quality of data cleaning, and provide useful analytic tools to better manage the epidemic. Better data collection and use would get us more accurate and useful situational awareness, inform better decisions, and enable learning. A key task is to build an information supply chain, as my colleague uh, Dr. Dylan George has called it, that reliably and efficiently collects, curates, and flows key data, not all data, key data, to decision, to decision makers in close to real time. Um, there are, for example, uh, commercial technologies that convert analog data, the type of data that comes in on pieces of paper from the many different countries and clinics in West Africa during the Ebola epidemic into digital data that can be aggregated and analyzed. Um, there are many more that I could mention, but traditional public health practice, uh, which is all about data, but mostly retrospective data has not incorporated these technologies largely because of money and our failure to recruit the kind of data scientists we need into government, which, believe me, is no, no easy task. A senior government, offic government official who was very important during the Ebola outbreak uh, told us that the data were essentially useless because they were incomplete they lagged for days or weeks, and they weren't trusted. We have got to, and we can change that. One of the biggest problems in building a robust information supply chain during epidemics is cultural. How can we institutionalize the imperative to share data during an outbreak? The science culture is to hoard the data to work it very carefully so that you know what you're saying can be backed up, and then publish it in a prestigious journal, usually months after the event. That has to change. Um, we have to figure out a way of um, rewarding the sharing in data. And in fact, this is a broad and compelling need across not just the public health, but the biomed community. We were talking to a senior pharma official uh, very involved with innovation recently. And he said if he had one wish, it would be to open all the data that NIH has, failed experiments as well as successful, so that everybody could get at it. So this open data problem is going to beset us and be a big issue um, in public health and biomed in the years to come. 
<clears throat> and we, we can take a lot of lessons um, from physics in that regard. The second technology I would wish for um, was mentioned in your excellent letter to Congress, um, namely rapid, rapid readout point-of-care di diagnostics. Diagnostics are absolutely critical to managing epidemics because without them, you really don't know where you are, where the epidemic is going, what's working, what isn't working. And if you don't have countermeasures, um, it is very difficult to figure out how to institute the so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions without knowing who's really sick and who isn't, um, particularly at the beginning of an epidemic when the clinical signs are not clearly known and you're trying to figure out how big a problem you have and where to assign resources. There's lots of diagnostic technology out there and more coming. CRISPR, for example, opens up the possibility of having on-demand diagnostics um, at point of care for pennies. The reason we don't have diagnostics, and this is a problem that plagues medicine, clinical medicine, as well as public health and epidemic management, is a market failure. It costs almost as much to create a new diagnostic and get it to the regulatory, through the regulatory regime as it does a therapeutic. But the return on investment is much less. And there are also very significant business hurdles um, to get compensation for a diagnostic takes years because you have to go through one insurance company after another. And so people, have, people in the biotech injury, uh, industry have just pulled out of the diagnostics business, and this isn't going to get fixed without intervention by government. And probably it isn't going to come just from BARDA and from CDC. FDA needs to get involved, and the Congress needs to get involved. And the third technology focus for the near term that I would urge is vaccines. We are not being sufficiently ambitious. Uh, and I say this knowing that Rick Bright, the very able director of Barter, is behind me as well as Dr. Red. Okay, They're, it's not that they wouldn't be sufficiently ambitious, but we've got to fund the capacity to design and rapidly manufacture vaccines on demand and at scale. That should be our goal, not yet another vaccine for another virus that pops up. This is the only way we're going to get ahead of these threats, whether they're natural threats or deliberate threats. And goodness help us if we actually con um, confront an engineered threat. We need to be able to make vaccines. They are more important in managing epidemics than therapeutics, and I think the private sector will step in and um, address therapeutics when the need arises, but they are much more complicated and expensive to make than vaccines. We have new technologies. Um, you heard mention of new kinds of um, vaccine technologies from the previous speakers, and I'm not going to go into detail, so I'd be happy to. We have new technologies based upon the booming market, by the way, in vaccines, which is worth about $37 billion globally right now, and our increased understanding of the immune system that we could leverage to take care of this problem. But it's got to be, as Scott said, more of a NASA and a moonshot than the current slow-mo pace year by year arguing for every dime in the BARDA budget. So those are my three near-term technologies. Long-term, as I said, um, 
we have got to take advantage of and pay attention to and recognize the biorevolution that is underway. The biorevolution is going to transform the global economy, much as the digital revolution has done. It will bring tremendous and wide-ranging benefits, and it's going to be essential to solving some of the world's biggest problems. The U.S. government has financed most of the basic research that has made this biorevolution possible. We have spent $1 trillion on basic biomed research since 1938, according to Forbes. And I agree with Dr. Lillibridge, we're not getting our money's worth out of it in terms of products, um, which I will come back to. But this biorevolution, this capacity to read, write, and edit the code of life, to understand how living organisms work, and to take that knowledge and engineer it predictably to make ourselves new materials, new forms of energy, um, <clears throat> uh, new ways of farming, et cetera, et cetera. This is going to touch multiple industries, and it's going to be one of the key economic platforms of the 21st century. And we are not awake to it. We are not awake. And the greatest threat from bio is not an attack with an engineered organism. The greatest threat, in my view, from bio, and I've been working biodefense for a long time, is that we fail to compete in the bioeconomy. This is not going to be just another technology coming online. This is going to be what the economists call a general purpose technology, like the steam engine and electricity and the internal combustion or, uh, engine and digitization. And we have got to recognize that we're going to have to build a new infrastructure to support and encourage the translation of the basic bio, which we have been so instrumental in creating, uh, into useful products. This is going to require a new set of institutions and new forms of organization and new relationships between the government and universities and the private sector. And the private sector in bio is quite diverse. It includes big pharma, who have their own problems struggling to innovate in a cost-effective way. And these small startup companies, these biotech companies that have done, so, and some of whom have grown into big companies, uh, who've done so much uh, to innovate in the area of the life sciences. <coughs> I just want to point out that we have not supported the translation of biology the way we supported the translation of physical sciences in the US government. We haven't built the DOE national labs for life sciences. We do not have a DARPA. We have a BARDA, who wishes they had DARPA's budget, um, for uh, far-out biology. DOD has seven categories of line-item funding for R&D. We've got individual investigator R01 grants in NIH and BARDA in the Valley of Death in biology. So we do need to rethink this translational infrastructure that has powered our economy and the physical sciences for the last half century, really since World War II, and how we're going to build such a transformative infrastructure for the life sciences. And I'll end by saying that other countries recognize the economic engine, which is biology and biotech. 
China in particular has told a senior American scientist that the UK owned the Industrial Revolution, the US owned the Digital Revolution, China will own the bio-revolution, and they are building and recruiting to that end. You heard about how they are bringing primate specialists back to China. They have a 10,000 talents program that is trying to suck up not just ethnic Chinese scientists, but American scientists, scientists from all over the globe, and give them money and lab support and so on and so forth to buttress their um, uh, bio biology and biotech infrastructure. They are systematically building the institutions they need to uh, do what's called synthetic biology. And they are engaging their private sector in a way that's unique to the Chinese so that you can't really tell the dividing line between their companies, their private companies, and the government. But they are moving strategically, determined, very determinedly, and with purpose. And, uh, they're going to win. And to your last question, Governor, um, machine learning and uh, deep learning and artificial intelligence are absolutely critical to biology. Biology is big data. Three billion base pairs in the human genome. One human genome. You start doing big cancer projects or projects involving multiple genomes, and you're, you're already talking big data, to really understand the natural phenomena behind the genome we're going to have to do very big experiments indeed. And because genomics, which is one of the foundational sciences of bioscience, um, involves such big data, um, then you know, machine learning plus bio, deep learning plus bio, AI plus bio are absolutely um, an essential uh, stop on the road ahead. Um, so to sum up, there's lots we could do. It's going to come, uh, the, the answers are going to come from the uh, goodwill and earnest efforts of people working collaboratively, certainly, uh, from our public health organizations um, who do so much with so little. But we are ignoring technology too much. We are failing to incorporate the capabilities that are already out there and to build new ones. And most importantly, we are not poising the country to take advantage of this revolution that is already upon us. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you very, very much. I'll change the order. My colleagues uh, to my right, any questions? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Wait. I have five questions. <laughs> Great. And I think we're like-minded, so really these are just to prompt you to say more. Um, so I won't have to talk about them instead. Um, but I'll just list them out, and maybe you can remember them. I'll remind you if you don't. Um, you kind of mentioned information for decision makers, and I think some of our earlier speakers talked about actually they had huge delays while the decision makers were deciding who was going to release the press release. Um, so I'd like you to clarify what the decision makers mean to you. Is that you know the local person, the clinician, the, does it have to be Washington, D.C., is the White House, something like that? Um, because I think that tends to confuse people when we just throw out that term. Um, so I'd love you to elaborate on that. Um, the next is about big data and open data. 
and you might be familiar with the Global Virome Project. There's talk about identifying 700,000 viruses of mammals is a big initiative. Um, in fact, China's already jumped in and said, oh, we'll put $40 million into it. The US, we don't know yet. France is interested. Um, but there's pushback on that by people saying, well, you wouldn't want to make that information public. Oh my gosh, what if it got used you know, maliciously rather than giving it over to machine learning and big data to actually learn something from 5,000 coronaviruses. So this is my second one. Um, third one is, I think what I'm hearing you say that you know maybe um, civil society, private sector, civil society, is gonna move a lot faster in all of this than governments. Um, and how does that position us and what's that relationship? Because that might actually be a solution, not a problem, but I'm not sure. So I'll let you ruminate on that. You talk a little bit of that. I get a lot of pushback on predicting and preventing outbreaks, like it's just not doable. Um, and I think some of this big analysis, more rapid sharing information could help us because we can identify where these, what under what conditions these are likely to occur and we can actually stop them. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Um, and then I would just add on, you know, on bioengineering and big bio, um, that I, I agree with you. One of the threats is we will be left behind. Um, but what are your thoughts on unintentional um, consequences? I would say we, we talk a lot about, I would like to redefine when we're talking about these bio things that they're, we say they're natural or intentional or accidental. I don't see much in the way of natural anymore. They're just unintentional. I mean, 10 billion, raising 10 billion chickens and getting a strange flu is just unintentional. It's nothing natural about raising 10 billion chickens. Um, so, um, so I wonder if that's gonna fit into our, our synthetic biology world too. So I just, just a lot of questions, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Doctor, do you have as much time to answer as he took to ask? So feel free, go right ahead. Okay. Um, the uh, audience I have in mind for the information supply chain is, first of all, the decision makers in an epidemic. And this is a layered group of people that ranges um, from uh, Dr. Red and his colleagues at CDC uh, to state health um, uh, departments and indeed to the White House. Um, but um, what I was thinking of in terms of the immediate next two to three years is how do we get better real-time information about the epidemic into the hands of the people who are deploying people and um, so on and so forth. Um, uh, the whole question of, oh, we can't let that out, that's too secret or that's too dangerous, just um, beleaguers us constantly in all sorts of um, situations. Uh, and I think what's ha I think one of the um, issues in uh, biology about talking about dangerous pathogens is that we're, we're still in shock at the notion that we could make bad pathogens on purpose or by accident, as opposed to having God you know, uh, visit them upon us. And so it seems very scary. I mean, we had a long debate in um, 
1999 about whether or not we should tell the public how few smallpox vaccine doses the U.S. had. And we decided in favor of truth and openness. And I think that's almost always um, the right default posture. But we have to explain it. We have to explain it. The truth, the reality is that all the information you need to do something evil is out there now, if you have the will. Uh, so this uh, fantasy that we can keep it secret is just that, a fantasy. Civil society always moves faster than government, um, except when we're in dire emergencies. And then government can muster forces and uh, create coalitions that are beyond the capacity of the civil society. And we um, have done that not just in the face of an emergency, but we have done it proactively. Um, and I'm thinking particularly of the extraordinary physical science accomplishments that we have had since World War II. But I would also cite things like building a public education system, which we once had, and other accomplishments um, that were partly through the private sector and partly through civil society. So we have to find new ways, I think, of engaging what, of, of what these we have to invent new ways of um, making these public-private partnerships. And we probably need a menu of them for different purposes. One way to really engage the, the public and private sectors that is tried and true is to create a uh, challenge. Let's build a nuclear weapon to stave off Nazi Germany. Uh, let's go. Let's send a man to the moon and bring him back alive. Uh, let's sequence the human genome, a relatively smaller project, but nonetheless the biggest big biology project we've done so far. And that is the way I would frame the vaccine challenge. Let's figure out how to make a vaccine at speed against anything and manufacture and distribute it to the world. <coughs> That's a good challenge, and we have the technology to do that, I believe, or could get it in a reasonable amount of time. And I would think that that's a challenge that would excite young people, that would engage people in pharma and biotech, because it's got a lot of moving parts, and they would learn a lot from it, and would probably involve the necessity of a deep dive into immunology and how the human immune system works, which would have a lot of benefits beyond uh, infectious disease. Let's see. I can't read four. What was four? Uh, predicting, predicting, forecasting. Okay. Um, I do not think we are capable at this point of forecasting an epidemic that is to come, depending on, you know, I mean, we're pretty certain we're going to have a flu pandemic for all kinds of scientific reasons. But we can't say when, where, and what um, what viral type we're going to have to deal with. I do think if we had an information supply chain <clears throat> that worked with reasonably limited flows of information of the right kind, we could get a lot better about predicting what is likely to happen with this epidemic, where should we deploy resources, how bad is it going to get, Okay, and um, is what we're doing working? 
So forecasting, I think, to inform decisions is well within reach. We need to get better at our models. The models do get better. They did get better over the course of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, for example, as more data came in. But the key is to have a way of collecting and curating data and then opening it all to everybody so folks can work on it and we get a very rapid sense of what's going on. Um, and about the 10 billion chickens, um, you know, humans make a lot of mistakes, and most of what we all deal with every day has to do with repairing our unintended missteps, okay? And it may be that we will learn in coming years that having 10 billion chickens in one place is a misstep. Okay, and we will correct that. Um, I would hope so. Um, we, didn't, we didn't mean to awaken Ebola in the jungles of Africa, but we are going to be encountering more and more unfamiliar microbes in the coming years, inevitably because of population pressures in our travel and trade patterns. Um, so we need to get good at managing these unintentional crises better than we are now. So thank you very much for just such a thought-provoking and compelling talk. Um, you, you addressed uh, one of the points I was thinking about when you said create a challenge. And, it, and what I was really wanting to get to was your suggestion for whether we need a new institution, organization, or being, or given the agencies that we have currently in the government, do you think that they're adequate? Or what would you suggest if you could wave a magic wand and come up with the ultimate funding machine? So the agencies that we now have are not adequate in terms of scope, reach, funding, talent. Um, we need to rethink how we recruit people to government. The current process is totally broken. Um, uh, I have been in new federal agencies, uh, such as DHS and DOE at the time was a fairly new agency. Uh, I wouldn't want to do that again if I could avoid it. I think it's very difficult to create um, uh, whole cloth new agencies in our federal process. But I would endorse the panel's um, uh, sense that there has to be somebody in charge and there has to be somebody with sufficient authority um, uh, to muster the kind of resources that we need and be able to speak uh, uh, authoritatively to the CEOs of multinational corporations, to be able to move NIH in certain directions, uh, to be able to create um, flows of intellectual capital in the universities. Um, so we don't have that institution now. Should it be built out of BARDA? Uh, should it be built, you know, with some co conglomeration of BARDA and NIH and the biotechs? That's going to take a lot of thinking. Um, you know, the institution I'm in now, which is a nonprofit created by CIA, uh, which was in, is intended to glue together government venture capital and uh, innovative startups, took 18 months to, to conceive and get on paper and another several years before it was really working. We're now in our 19th year at IQT. So this isn't something we're going to whip up overnight. 
Um, but I do think we need new institutional forms to ground these efforts. Hi, doctor. Thank Hi, you for coming. Uh, just one quick question. Could you provide us with some materials or your thoughts later on about where the investments should be to accomplish this biotech revolution? Sure. Be happy to. Tara, I could listen to you all afternoon. I always learn from your presentations and our conversations. I, I, I think I'm, I'd like to drill down a little bit more on a couple of things you said. One, you said that I think one of the most provocative things you said is we have failed to compete in the bioeconomy and that we need a translational infrastructure in order to do that. But then earlier in your comment, you mentioned that we've already spent a trillion dollars since 1938, and we haven't got our money's worth. On one hand, it seems the answer to the fact that we've not succeeded in competing in the bioeconomy is the lack of resources that we've talked about a lot, whether it's BARDA or any one of a number of, of entities or efforts. We just haven't committed the resources. But in those instances where resources have been committed, you say we don't have our, we haven't gotten our money's worth. If 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 we had to do a better job of getting our money's worth while more effectively competing in the bioeconomy, what would it look like? It would look like a better balance between our investments in basic science and our investments in technology. <clears throat> You know, Beniva Bush was a great American, but he uh, did the country a disservice by presenting a model of how science works and how technology develops that is incorrect. What he said, and this has been the prevalent model in most people's minds um, ever since World War II, is that if the government invests in basic science and don't tell the researchers what to do, they'll figure it out then out of the other end will come knowledge that industry will automatically put to work in uh, translating into useful technologies, which as we now know are one of the major fuels for a growing economy. That is not how it works. The relationship between basic science and technology development is iterative, okay? Te what's technology? Technology is the harnessing of an understanding of a natural phenomena, or more than one phenomena, to human purpose. Where does technology come from? Technology comes from the combination and recombination of existing technologies. So the more you have, the more you can build. We're in a time where we have a lot of technologies and there's a lot that we can do with them. But this iterative relationship between the practical problems to be solved by technology and the fundamental knowledge of a very complex phenomena such as you know, biology um, has got to be an um, ongoing conversation to be most efficient and effective. Possibly one of the greatest examples of an effective translation of basic science, the generation of basic science, and then its translation into products is Bell Labs. Right? Now, Bell Labs was made possible because AT&T had a very unusual 
um, monopoly and agreement with government that it would openly license anything it invented. We got a heck of a lot out of Bell Labs. There's no Bell Labs for biology. Okay, same thing with the DOE labs. Okay, the DOE labs um, have uh, created extraordinary intellectual capital and national security goods for the nation. There's nothing like that in biology. Okay, pharma has really been the main translator until recently, until the 1970s of basic science into products. And they have a very hard job. Okay, that is a very difficult and until recently mostly empirical trial and error process. Okay, um, right now pharma is chained uh, to their quarterly reports and is more intent on profit uh, than on uh, helping humanity. And I say that having the greatest respect for many of the people who are working in the industry and working very hard. But the reality is they're mostly owned by hedge funds. And we know what they want, okay, and how uh, uh, they force their companies to pursue profit. So um, since the 1970s, these small companies, what we now call the biotechs, who were usually three smart guys and a dog coming out of universities who had a good idea, have been phenomenally creative and have given us all kinds of projects, including most of the genomics revolution, um, uh, and now the SynBio revolution. Um, and they have been very active and very productive, and um, uh, my hat is off to them. But if we really want to build an economy that has um, uh, the translational power um, that we need to compete against China, for example. And by the way, 20 countries have strategic uh, bio initiatives for economic purposes. This is not just China. They are just extraordinary in how serious and aggressive they have been. Um, but if we really want to compete, then we should, and if we want to solve some of the biggest problems ahead of us, and that's a whole other you know, conversation, then we are going to have to build a very robust translational capacity for all of the biology that we have learned and are continuing to okay. amass. All right. Briefly, thank you very much for your remarks. Sure. Um, fascinating. You had strong words about the government's, I think it was talent development or recruitment efforts, that they're, they've been a failure. Mm -hmm. um, would you expand on that? So what specifically does government do wrong in that respect? Well, first of all, it's impossible to figure out if there's a job available. Mm -hmm. Okay. The website is pathetic, an embarrassment, and useless. Okay. Secondly, Anything you, else? Well, <laughs> I know we're time limited, so. As many adjectives <clears throat> as you want. It's great to be out of government, actually, and be able to say these things. Secondly, the HR system has just basically collapsed, okay? You can't hire people. If you have somebody you know you want that person in and they're very talented and totally qualified and they want to come in, you can't get them in, okay? You just can't. It took me over a year to uh, get a, um, a fellow who uh, was a presidential appointee in DOD to move to DHS. Okay, and everybody agreed it should happen. We just couldn't get it done. Getting somebody new in is very difficult. Um, 
we, we, government is the opposite of what the millennials are looking for as a workplace, okay? Uh, it is hierarchical, it is bureaucratic, it is stupid in the sense that we have laws and rules and procedures that were sensible once and no longer are, but we don't have any way of renewing our procedures um, that uh, works very well, um, unless a secretary takes it on. Um, I was in government when um, Vice President Gore uh, initiated the re reinventing government effort, and that made a difference. We got rid of a lot of regulations, for example, in DOE that we no longer needed, and it encouraged people to look at things anew. We need something like that, I think. But if we don't figure out how to recruit the next generation into government, we're cooked. And as far as I can tell, we're not even thinking about it. Well, I'm going to ask one final question, but I think on behalf of the panel, we thank you for your participation, your very provocative testimony, and one of the, I love the three-point plan. We'll call it the O'Toole plan for a better, for, for, a, for a stronger. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to say for not a greater a good bio. Um, you're going to you're going to take. Me. I'm not going down that path. Um, your first uh, point was with regard to what I really thought was. Uh, really intriguing to me, and that is a uh, all the information that government generates in the biofield, whether it's CDC, NIH, academic research sponsored by public money, any of those public the whole notion that that becomes available to everybody, the small startups, the big boys, seems to make a great deal of sense. So if you are looking at the universe of depositories of information. I mean, I'm thinking in my own mind, and you've been down this path, clearly you can get pharmacological information and the public health information, you can get diagnostic information, that's one set of information. You got all this research going on in, in government institutions, publicly funded, that ought to be in the public domain. Uh, research that they're doing in the FBI, CDC, NIH, that ought to be in the public domain. Uh, who, who would oversee all the collection? I mean, access is one thing, but who would oversee the collection? And what, what organizations would you mandate? You're getting public money. This is research. It could be, should be used in the private sector. Report in. Where would you go? Well, I think many agencies are trying to do this <clears throat> already. For example, FDA is very interested in how they could make uh, their reams of clinical data available for further research in a way that protected patient confidentiality but put all this knowledge Absolutely. out there for others to work on. NIH also is trying to go open source and make sure that people who get their grants um, 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 put their data out for inspection. And there's a huge furor going on right now uh, because Europe has insisted that anybody funded by European uh, research money has to publish all their data. So this, this would be a very controversial move, and to do it, you would have to go step by step. Um, but th this is the age of big data, and uh, we, will, we will move in this direction one way or another. I would do it agency by agency. I would learn from one agency how to do it in the next agency. You would have to create, I think, some kind of um, interagency governmental um, 
enterprise um, and um, you would have to bring in skill sets from outside the government that you know we do not have now um, I will say that um, this um, pharma executive uh, with whom we spoke noted that it took his company a very big company five years to get some of their past data organized and online so that the whole company could have access to it and use it because the companies are all stovepiped as well, sure. right? So it is a humongous task and um, uh, would not be easy, but we should think about it. We should really examine it. And going forward, we should make that kind of a hallmark of the way we do work. Colleagues, anything else? Have you have you written on that at all? I mean, this is very provocative. But you've done quite a bit of writing. But have you, have you laid out? No. Okay, I'm very curious. Let me just. I mean, I mean just treat the notion of a central repository that large companies and small companies can draw on. I'm a little adverse to an interagency group working on it because I was part of an interagency group and they move at glacial-like speed. Um, and you know, they always there's a tendency in this town to protect information because we overclassify everything. But I'm intrigued by that notion. It makes so much sense because all these small farmers, it's true, a friend, our friend Jim Greenwood isn't here, who represents the industry of the small biotechs. But, but this is, you so know. they got all that information out there they could add to theirs, and who knows what. They I mean, this is a real theme in cancer research by that right notion. now. Question? Uh, no, just first, uh, sorry, sorry, I had to. Uh, I go out to a meeting so I couldn't hear you. Secondly, uh, thank you, because you're really one of the people who first educated me about the biodefense bio right when you were at uh, DHS and when I read your stuff. And the third is I haven't seen or heard you for a while, but it's very reassuring to see that you haven't lost your straight talk cutting edge uh, <laughs> qualities <laughs> just in the few minutes I've been here. So uh, uh, thank you. I look forward to seeing you again. And uh, I don't have anything else to say except uh, everyone here, thank you for being here, and go in peace. <laughs>